0: Shelf by genre a show about types of literature and the worlds they imagine. This season, we're reading Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun, and this episode is about chapters 30 through the appendix of The Shadow of the Torturer. For a list of content warnings, please check the episode description. I'm Cameron, and here ready to perform this play with me are Michael and Austin.
1: Urgh. Urgh. I'm going to tear this stage in half and come down and get you.
2: Rather than describe what I am doing, I will do it later at a point in the narrative when it's much, much more convenient.
1: Brr, I'm big <laughs> and scary. Call me ball dandas. My turrets. <laughs> oh, oh, golly.
0: My turrets.
2: What a my my moment. parasol.
0: My, par- my shoes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh,
2: I'm dropping all my counterfeit coins. <laughs>
1: it's perfect it's an it's an ideal moment to read in a book <laughs> when he says well he got a pig it's, it's just incredible it's, he's listing the things they found before Ah, uh, it's great
0: there's a moment in case you're not reading yeah. the book mm-hmm. and we'll get there extensively later on in the episode but better the the point of the play that Dr. Talos and Baldanders put on. Seemingly the point is to let baldanders go hog wild at the end and scare everyone so badly that they run away and then they pick up all the shit they dropped. Uh-huh. Including one time a baby pig.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and because this is the book of the new son, you're not gonna like what happens to that baby pig. <laughs> This is no babes. This is no George Miller's Babe Two, Babe in the City.
2: Say, this is what we're really missing at this point in the adventure: is the talking animal sidekick. Yeah.
1: What? (laughs) Oh, if 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 they even like at one time we found a pig, and here it is. (laughs) I was like, "Hello, gentlemen. How are you doing today?" I'd be, yeah, okay, yeah. That's still within the realm of possibility. I want
0: to hear more about this guy. I want to hear more about you. Were doing a little bit of a voice on this pig guy.
1: Yeah. This is well. The world is vast and infinite, and I've. Left behind the the pale orb you call Earth, and I've seen the sights. <laughs> I've walked through the mirrors of Father and Air, and taken in a, a vision. Now I, I don't have the uh, insight of the Pan Creator himself, but I've seen a thing or two and can help it's you religious. on your way. Carnifex
3: what, just what? Hear,
2: hearing the little trotters click 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 through yeah. the corridors of time. <laughs> Is he still a baby pig? No, no, no. I'm They found me when I was a wee babe. Oh, I see. Uh, People can interpret whether or not the pig has been affected by time dilation. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's right.
1: What's that I see in the the corner of my mirror? (laughs) Oh, dear.
0: I really thought we were going to be walking toward like a, and you know, gentlemen. Uh Uh-huh. I'm ha- I'm as happy as a me and shit. <laughs> <laughs> He'd get there.
1: He would get there. Yeah. 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 He, I think this guy has a lot of pig related humor. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> he has a lot of like, that's the, that's the, he's not doing his bit here. He's doing, he's just talking to his friends, but he does have a tight five that he could pull out at any, at any moment.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, you know, the this is me when I'm on truffle. And, you know, he, start, he like bugs his eyes out. Yeah. Right. Starts Everyone like running in loses
1: place. It. He actually yeah. opens for the play. The reason he didn't show up is we came in the middle of the play, but he mm-hmm. does an opening act. Uh, he MCs the whole mm-hmm. thing. Actually, there's an open mic before the play. Also that he mcs It's great.
0: I went uh, one time in college I went to an open mic. Well, no, it actually was not an open mic. It was a pay for it. Um, comedy show. Mm by uh, and this is not this is like after the blue collar comedy tour era sure, but resonant with the blue comedy Collar tour and I went because a friend of mine who I will not name uh, but who is a known quantity in the world uh, had convinced <laughs> um, uh, had had convinced the like promoter to let him be the opener. Oh boy. At this point my my friend had performed maybe comedy five times ever <laughs> and so this was like an actual show that that people had paid money to come see and it was it's like two touring comics, you know just straight up road comics and then my friend but the MC there was so good and yeah. powerful at being an MC that it made me go like, oh my God, being an MC is an art form yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, he was so bald. He he, he <laughs> was wearing wait. such large pants.
1: <laughs> Is this part of the art form? Uh, I don't know. I, can't, I it, it's
0: inextricable to me. Symbols make us, dude. Right, I don't right, know what to right. tell you. Right. Right. right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but I just I can so clearly remember, and he would just roast the shit out of people. He was like an insult comic as the mm. as the mm-hmm. uh, MC for the whole thing. And then guys got up and just did straight up blue collar comedy tour rerun shit. <laughs> it was was it wait, was it those guys? It no, was a different no. guy. It was guys oh, echoing.
1: No. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> because initially in the world, there must be an original thing for there mm-hmm. to be a secondary thing. Otherwise, you'd be creating something from nothing. Mm-hmm. They, of course, are attached to the blue comedy color guys mm-hmm. in some yeah. sort of metaphysical mm-hmm. way. But not. It, it was not Bill Ingvall, Larry the Cable Guy, right. the mm-hmm. dude who smokes, or Jeff Foxworthy
1: the dude who sm- oh the dude who smokes as yeah, yeah. a kid i always thought he was the the cool one i bet he was a piece of shit but he always struck me as being like you know the one who would who would hang out with you at the bar afterwards and like maybe he wasn't he maybe he was more than just his bits you know but actually yeah. in retrospect i bet not
0: well so that's ron wide i had to
1: look him up yeah. yeah
0: and i i will say uh it seems like he is the only one who had an act that could live outside of that. That is show. it. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah, you know what I mean. Like you can watch him be like, oh, he's like a Sam Kinison, like a lower
1: energy Sam Kinison. Mm-hmm. Right. I love mm-hmm. his on stage energy. The way
0: he just yeah. kind of like, he
2: always have like a a, a like thing of bourbon or something. Yeah, too. he had a yeah, bourbon yeah.
1: and a cigarette, often in the same hand. Yeah, and he just kind of pace around the stage slowly, and he felt like he owned it for that reason. You know, like. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and I can say he's the only person of the Blue Collar Comedy Tour that I ever watched one of their stand-up specials outside of the Blue Comedy Collar Tour. Sure. Sure. You know? Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Other mm-hmm. than
0: listening to Jeff Foxworthy rattle off 10,000 you-might-be-a-redneck jokes, you know, on, <laughs> That's on like, like audio. A 10-hour YouTube video. One of those. <laughs> If only YouTube existed when I was seven years old, right, <laughs> I would be way radicalized inside of, yeah. you know, some sort of Minecraft video, number one. And uh, but number two, I would have. Can you imagine the, the you might be a redneck jokes? You would have uh, access to. Oh, it would be too.
1: It would be too
0: powerful a thing. It would be. He was also nicknamed Tater
2: Salad.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. this is why I think they maybe they didn't like it. You know what I mean? I guess they probably didn't name him Tater Salad. That's in his material. They weren't out they weren't in the front row being like, Hey Tater shit Salad, shut up. <laughs> you think you
0: think the other blue collar comedy tour guys were roasting him? Well that's what my they mind in the name naturally went, so Yeah. Hey, can I, uh, I'm reading this Wikipedia page to get a sense of the guy. Yeah. I don't I don't think we have a strong sense of him one way or the other. There's no, importantly, there's not a controversial views section <laughs> yeah. of the Wikipedia page, yeah. right? Which is often a clear indicator of something going on. So I can't speak it one way or the other. I can say that Ron White stopped drinking in early 2021. He credits the consultation of a hypnotherapist and the use of ayahuasca with his abstinence. Uh, all right. So he's one of those guys, you know, sitting in a trash bag in the desert, shitting himself mm-hmm. with a shaman mm. from L.A. County. Mm-hmm. He's like, I, I got to stop drinking. Maybe, maybe, you know, give you some clarity. Yeah, He was like 65 when he was doing ayahuasca. That's a, that's that's an older age to, like, put your body through that,
1: mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. It's like a yeah. lot going on. Uh, here's just a, a single sentence quote. Just a, I just want to, one quote here. One sentence. I'm not going to read more mm-hmm. than this. My audiences are sometimes conservative, but I openly smoke pot at my shows. So that's where he's at. <laughs> yeah, you know,
0: at, at around 1997, he's locked in the yeah. political spectrum yeah, of 1997.
1: It. Yeah, you didn't hear what happened to libertarians? <laughs> <Yes>. Yeah, <laughs> they're doing
0: their own thing. They're they're free thinkers. I don't know what are you' saying. Hold on, am I
1: 1997? God, we can't. All we, right. we have to get to this book. But well, one day we have to have a conversation about Gillette and the Libertarians mm-hmm. turning on him. It's just we have to. I feel like were you a Pingleton guy? No, well, no, because I knew that he thought the America with Disabilities Act was evil, and so I couldn't ever be right. But he was a stand-in for all the Libertarian friends I had yeah. when I was seventeen. Oh,
3: yeah.
1: Michael, yeah, I wasn't friends with you yet, but we would have been friends then.
2: Yes, right. absolutely, right. right? And I would have right. been like, hey, you should, you should read this thing that Penn Jillette wrote about. Mm-hmm. Blah. Mm-hmm. Oh,
0: no. All right. Well, uh, yeah, we'll do that in some other. I was too for busy
1: being show. Catholic to, 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 <laughs> be, to be a libertarian. Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> the, uh, yeah, we'll do that on, on a different season of Shelled by Genre. The one on close-up magic. <laughs> it's own distinct yeah. genre.
1: Oh, God.
0: We're gonna watch uh, Ricky, Ricky James fifty two assistants. Yep. We're gonna watch uh, a couple episodes of Pin and Teller bullshit. we will watch uh, the second season of Chris Angel. Uh, it, at one point, for Patreon, Michael and I had committed to doing like a one once a month watch along on Discord of some like wild ass thing I'd purchased. And that's where mm-hmm. Michael and I watched the documentary. Orbs, orbs. Which, which is about the l- little dust particles that appear when you take pictures with digital cameras and how they are oh, portals ghosts? and emanation. Yeah, yeah, from other worlds. Uh-huh. Exactly. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, we realized that the time commitment of doing that it's was too immense, much. and So
1: we couldn't do it. I know exactly I what did. shows I would watch, but I can't.
0: So, well, well I purchased Chris Angel Mind Freak volume two for this, <laughs> and I've never had a chance to watch it. So, you know, that's me. Thank that's on me. Uh, I, I went down a real Wikipedia hole the other day learning about what Chris Angel is up to right now. Uh,
2: uh He's got a show in Vegas. Oh, oh yeah, that makes, that makes is sense. Is he making uh entire castles float over cities and disappear? This is good. This is good stuff. Getting us over there. All right. Oof,
0: fine. Let's get there.
1: Talk about the book.
0: <laughs> Look, I can talk about uh, minor celebrities from the past 40 years. Easy. No question. <laughs> I'll talk about uh, like 1981, this is going back a little too far, but like 1981, uh, Burt Reynolds on uh, uh, The Tonight Show mm. with Johnny. Mm-hmm. I don't other, think either of those are
2: minor celebrities.
1: No, I don't think, I think you've, you've identified I I'm just saying we'll go
0: big and get small,
2: you know, I'll okay, invert pyramid
0: <laughs> on this thing, right? Like, we'll, we'll get, we'll start big of, hey, everybody knows Burt Reynolds, right? Right. Mm-hmm. But does everyone know some other asshole? Right? That's how and we'll then, draw them in. Yeah, exactly. Their <laughs> <Our> loss leader. <laughs> That's right. That's why we started with such a crowd pleaser, big ass book as Book of the New Sun. For this, <laughs> uh, you know, one of the best selling books of all time is really to draw them in to get them, to get them <laughs> for that next thing. That that obscure shit uh, we read chapters thirty through the appendix. Day. This is a shorter reading. Uh, for the thing this will probably be for Book of the New Sun, the shortest reading we ever do. Looking at the schedule, just to be honest with you. Um, We can start anywhere that you might want to start. Do you have anything you would like to say before we get going? Or I can read the summary.
1: Let's read the summary. I feel like we did some some fun banter already. You know? Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't need to. The sooner we can get to talking about this creep that shows up literally immediately, the better. Talking about Hodor? (laughs) No, that's a different oh, no. guy. Oh, wait, what have I been reading? <laughs>
2: oh. oh, no. You're never going to believe what happens to their dad at the end of this one. <laughs> Pay attention to the large grave digger.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right. <clears throat> this is the summary
0: for episode four. If, in case this is the first episode you're listening to, I summarize the reading in a declarative way. Okay. <clears> okay. <throat> Severian is accosted by execution fetishists. One of them tells him that someone stole his doll, his paracoida, and that justice has never been served to those shipmates he had on the quasar. Later, Severian and Dorcas retire to a room and have sex. Severian says some truly wild shit about sex, and Dorcas observes that all men are torturers, and that the world would be different if women ran it. Severian dreams of the woman in the water, and then wakes to prepare for Agilus's execution. He muses on morality, life, and death, and what a person is after their death. Severian stands on the scaffold for a long time before Agilus is produced, and notes that the crowd could go bad if he doesn't. He does everything correctly, parting Angelus's head from his body, making the shadow of the torturer fall where it should. Aegis screams from somewhere else. Severian tells us that the aftermath of the execution is the hardest part, given that the executioner is responsible for the head and the body must be protected from eaters of the dead. Severian and Dorcas stay at the military barracks until nightfall, and then they make for the wall to leave Nessus. Dorcas reveals something about the execution that Severian fails to tell us. He was ill after the execution, and he claims it was only nerves. This forces Severian to think back on another gap in the text, the moment where the Avern Leaf hit him and yet failed to kill him. He asserts that Aegia must have been lying when she said that the Avern kills inevitably. Dorcas asks for the copy of the letter from the inn from before the duel and Severian reaches into his fanny pack to reveal the claw of the conciliator, which he assumes was stolen by Aegia and put into his bag. Both he and Dorcas are wowed. Then they both look up into the sky and see a city floating there with red light emanating from its windows and it vanishes, leaving only a cascade of sparks. It is so miraculous that Severian says it makes him fall fully in love with Dorcas. I think for maybe the fourth time. <laughs> <laughs> They walk together, and Severian tells Dorcas a theory that all signs have three meanings. The literal meaning, a symbolic meaning, and a transubstantial meaning that reflects a higher reality. They try to think about the city and the sky through the system, and they fail to. Then they stumble on Dr. Talos, Baldanders, and a very sexy lady named Jolenta, putting on a play. Severian summarizes the play, and I will not attempt to do that here, because we'll get to read it later in the books. In the course of the play, Baldanders plays a monster who Severian has to defeat and hold back, but eventually Baldanders plays the part so well that he takes up some flaming torches and starts going hog wild in the crowd. The crowd flees. The theater troupe walks through the place where the crowd once was, and they get all the goodies that the crowd dropped while fleeing. Jolenta, whose breasts are so large that Severian is worried about her spine, wants to go to an inn for the night. Dr. Talos declines, and they sleep in the set. Dr. Talos never sleeps. Severian then reflects on his former master, Malrubius, who became bedridden and then died when Severian was a boy. He justifies this digression to clarify that what he is writing is not to entertain or to instruct, but instead it is a history. He also tells us that this art of literary style is closer to his former profession than he would have assumed. He tells us about an old Master Werenfred, who was able to make the condemned on the block appear to die and be saved at the same time for two different parties. He explains this as there being two different desires from readers. Some want ease, and others want richness in the writing. Severian claims to serve each. He tells us of a waking dream he had where Triskel and Master Malrubius came to him, and his former master quizzed him on politics and religion. Severian wakes up and makes a lot of comments about Jolenta's body. She is voluptuous, and he's very attracted to the image of her, although he intimates that her body seems like a burden to her. She is the waitress from several days ago, but transformed. He doesn't really pick up on that. Baldanders wakes up and says he doesn't dream. Severian also reveals that he thinks Baldanders is Dr. Talos' slave. Dr. Talos divides the cash from the previous night's show while denying himself a share. The guy who lost his doll shows up. He says some totally weird shit about ships and dead moons and armies of the sun. And Dr. Talos asserts that he must have been in the crowd last night and really enjoyed the show. (laughs) His name is Hethor. Severian just thinks he's horny for executions and torturers. They pack up the playset and head for the main road. Severian plans to return to Nessus to return the claw of the Pelerines to the Pelerines, but learns that they have left the city through the huge gate in the wall that everyone's heading for. It's a big wall. Severian doesn't think that most birds can fly over that wall. It is made from the same black metal as the buildings of the citadel. The interior of the wall is very thick, and it is staffed by people Severian can see through windows built into the side of the gate. Humans, cacogens, and people who look like beasts. A fellow traveler named Jonas starts talking with the crew that we have followed so far. He has a metal hand of some sort, and he tells them about the past of Earth. His story is about a woman from the stars who threatens the lords of Earth with some magic beans, telling them that they must obey her or she'll throw them into the ocean and destroy the planet. Then those people tore her apart. There's panic in the gate, and Severian kills a guy. Then he tells us to wait for the next book. There's also an appendix, and that's the Shadow of the Torturer.
1: Well, the appendix is the Shadow of the Torturer. That's right. (laughs) <laughs> Comes at the end. last thing you see yeah, sure, must be the shadow sure, of the torture. Sure, this makes sense. Wow summary That's yeah. all of it. yeah. He cut that guy's head off Re- really
0: did yeah. in a way that's that's unremarked upon. yeah, although he does tell us that a body shoots a
2: lot of blood out of it after you cut its head off. He does yep. say that. <laughs> and he's probably right. I you know he'd yeah. know more than me. No, and very, very uh, quietly and implicitly, he is 100% like dipping those napkins into the blood and giving them to the people who came and were like, hey, I'll give you some money if you dip napkins into the blood. Yeah, some stuff doesn't make it into the summary.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. (laughs) Well, he does that in two different ways. Like like that, that is, he sets up that there are people who follow you around. He sets up that you could make a good living by giving them the, the, you know, um, handkerchiefs dabbed with the dead man's blood. And then later he tells Dorcas, we sure made a lot of money at that execution. He doesn't say <laughs> how. Yeah. 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 Uh, he makes it tips. seem like it was, he makes it seem yeah, with tips. Yeah, exactly. And he makes it seem like he was overpaid or maybe he, maybe he was also overpaid by the chili arc, but who could say?
0: Yeah. Everybody love a chili arc. Uh, the, I, I wanted to, uh, read the thing. Cause when he's talking about,
1: uh, you know, what after Is the it execution? Kiliark?
2: It's probably Kiliark. I think it's Kiliark. It's but Kiliark. Also I sat who, with
1: it for three seconds and was like, ah, fuck. Who,
2: nah, who cares? As uh, St. Augustine tells us, those <laughs> who are vexed by differences in pronunciation <laughs> are of weak uh, character. Get
1: them. Get them. <laughs> I forgot <laughs> that you'd done your St. Saint, Saint Augustine deep dive for this one. Yeah. For, for reasons <laughs> we'll get to. Uh,
0: see, here, here's a real pronunciation thing. I'm from the south.
1: Yeah. Augustine. Right? Augustine, yeah, mm-hmm. uh-huh.
0: that's right, Augustine. Yeah, <laughs> even though we have a place called St. Augustine here, you know what I mean? Like yeah. St. Augustine, Florida, is like a, p- a prominent location. But that's itself. why, in a way, it has to be Augustine, right? <laughs> it couldn't be the name of a tourist trap.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: It's impossible. They couldn't be the same. Augustine uh, but, is uh, is of course my namesake. Not not in the sense that my parents were like, we love St. Augustine of Hippo, mm-hmm. but Austin is derivative <laughs> of Augustus. Agu- this kid's gonna Augustine. love talking books. He's gonna, He's gonna love to love hang out in gardens with talking this books. Is, <laughs> as a biracial Catholic growing up, I had I was like, oh, I'm just like St. Augustine. am then I read about St. Augustine's life and was like, oh, this is not the life I'm living. I was not doing this <laughs> as a kid.
0: No. You you could have done it. I could have gone, you could have really went for it. You could have been mm-hmm. looked at its destiny. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh what what nominative determinism, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you know, what can I do? <laughs> I gotta hang out with ladies and and uh you know where he live, Constantinople something like
1: that uh, I think I think I thought it was in the Roman province but I don't know I don't yeah, know I don't know yeah. I know my, he was my, deep my into band. into Manichaeism for a little while there and you know just dabbling dabbling with what's out there in the world you know trying <laughs> out trying out the classics so anyway tell us, so,
0: uh, Michael why have you done the deep dive on Saint Augustine.
2: Uh, well, because I wanted to bring it into conversation with uh, what Severian talks about with Dorcas later about the three different types of meaning. Uh, I don't know if that's where we necessarily want to start the conversation. If only because there's so much good stuff that happens before then. Yeah, like we, we need to talk about we need about th- we need to talk about that guy and his paracueta because there's like nothing else that's going to get us there.
0: <sighs> talk about this. Nothing else is going
2: to get him business. there. That's for <laughs> sure. <where it works. laughs> I know. <laughs> Master. Uh, <laughs> so,
0: you know, uh, Austin, you shared with us like an audiobook thing. Yeah. Uh, of of this. And that's not how I hear Hathor at all.
1: Give me your H- Hathor. Hathor,
0: Hathor. Hathor. Hath- I read Hathor. I say Hathor. Hathor.
1: Heathor. Like mm-hmm. He-Man. Thor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I uh-huh. just, I feel like that's not it. Thor. But there's kind of an irony if it is, right? Because
3: remember, yeah. like, he Hathor, was, Hathor,
1: remind me of the babe. <laughs> he was a space sailor, right? I'm I'm yeah. imagining it's a space sailor. On the, the quasar, quasar. Yeah, come it's on. A, it's a sized. Yeah. Italicized. yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's out here having <laughs> having, you know, Flash Gordon adventures. Uh maybe he was a Heathor then. Like maybe he lived up to that before the you know, before the era of the Paracoida, the Scopinlana, the Poppet, you know? Yeah. Uh
0: but uh no, yeah, he to me is uh uh, Cespinar from uh, from Baldur's Gate Two, Uh-oh. Uh, the expansion pack. I'm Cespinar. I'm Cespinar. Mm. Right, that's 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 Thor to me, which makes him much more less nefarious than he seems in the book. Mm-hmm. But that is in my head. That, that's him. Um, but uh, yeah, you want to talk about him? He went to the
1: stars with his real doll, and someone <laughs> took it. Someone took it. And
0: now,
3: I mean, well, that's, that's what we know.
2: That's,
1: that's what we is know. The deal, right? And he is obsessed now with a sort of violent justice because of this
3: <laughs> we all I, come to I justice
1: mean, in our own
0: way you know yeah the writing of the thing is astonishing you know uh, because uh, like stylistically uh this is what he says right uh uh, "'Master, when I was on the quasar, I had a paracoida, a doll, you see, a genicon, so beautiful that w- with her great pupils, as dark as wells, her irises purple like asters, or pansies blooming in summer, Master, whole beds of them, I thought, had been gathered to make those eyes, that flesh that always felt sun-warmed. "'Where is she now, my own scopolanya, my poppet? Let hooks be buried in the hands that took her. Crush them, Master, beneath stones!' Where she has gone from the lemon wood box I made her, her for her, where she never slept at all, for she lay with me all night, not in the box, the lemon wood box, where she waited all day, watch and watch, master, smiling when I laid her in it, so she might smile when I drew her out. some wild shit. Yeah, and it
2: goes on. Like, yeah. This, yeah, yeah, this it is, just this, keeps going. This is like a 300-word monologue. <laughs>
1: This whole section has the most you're walking somewhere when some wild shit starts happening, either like right next to you or down the block. That's like constantly a thing that Wolf is is drawing to mind for me throughout this five chapters. Um, yeah. If you have ever had- like walked down the block and see a minor celebrity like shouting into a
0: webcam. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh-huh. as part of an art installation. You ever <laughs> see that?
1: Yes. Yes. I lived <laughs> on the block where what's his face did that? The uh, He will not divide us. <laughs> no, I know okay i don't know if you're making make a reference. reference to that okay <laughs> bad yeah i know it seemed bad yeah he came to the starbucks i used to do work at and he was like oh, i saw you went out there and did a little You did a little thing that was good that's what it's all about bro and i was like i have to go back to to writing a review about far cry or whatever the <laughs> fuck i was doing <laughs> did he call you bro yeah yeah yeah. 100%. that's
0: funny yeah that's real funny mm-hmm. Uh, But, yeah, it does have that kind of thing of like, oh, man, I got to deal with this now. Like, I'm I'm
1: going to I have to hear this whole story. Well, And it it ends in a break. It doesn't end with Severian being like, and then we got away from this guy. So I imagine he just kept doing this for some amount of time after the text in this section ends. You know, Severian likes this guy.
0: Does he? he? I mean, he doesn't clock him in the face. Yeah. yeah, and we do know. He lets Severian. him follow him around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll get more about He's not going yeah. away. You know what yeah. I mean? He's like part of the crew for well, a little
2: while. Yeah, so here's what, here's what Severian says. Uh, sure. So there's a couple of other people. Cameron called them, you know, execution fetishists. Uh. There's a couple of them, and then uh, Hethor or Hethor is the the fourth one. All of them stirred me to pity, even as they revolted me. But one man most of all, he was even smaller than the one who had given me the money, grayer than the gray-haired woman, and there was a madness in his dull eyes, a shadow of some half-suppressed concern that had worn itself out in the prison of his mind until all its eagerness was gone and only its energy remained. This is the shadow of the torture. He's
1: shadowing Severian. <laughs> That's right. Uh, an uh. important thing here in the very beginning, too, is is we, we get um, a, a little throwaway line that might connect us back to or, or open the door to what we think Severian thinks about what happened to Thecla, what he did to mm. Thecla. is uh, one of the questions that they, that they send his way is, will you break him first? Will there be a branding? Have you ever killed a woman? Yes, I yeah. said. Yes, I did once. And obviously, I mean, I think that it's it's worth saying that um, we often go to our, like, second-level reading of something quickly, where, like, we had a lot of time spent talking about, hey, did Severin kill Thecla? Did Severin go in there with a the knife and kill Thecla, motivated by uh, anger and resentment that she kind of positioned him as a little boy in some ways? Um, uh, we didn't spend a lot of time with the notion that I think a lot of readers have, which is he left the knife there to. Uh, let her take her own life um, uh, as a way of ending the pain that the revolutionary put on her. Revolutionary, is that what the name of the device was? Revolutionary, yeah. Uh, um, uh, And here, likewise, I think that you can do the reading that is, oh yeah, he stepped in there and did it. Or you can do the reading that he is like consumed with his guilt for having – been part of the mechanism that would put her in the revolutionary at all, and then also being the one who gave her the knife to do it. And to Mm -hmm. him, that's how it feels. So I'm just like voicing that, yes, that is the textual, that is one textual reading that you could do here. Um, uh, But also, is this another moment of Severian being like, slipping up and repeating a thing he says out loud to us, the reader, that goes Mm -hmm. against the way he framed something previously? Because I think it might be. (laughs) Right. Uh,
0: Yeah, and I think the important thing there is uh, part of the fun. I think of reading the Book of the New Sun specifically, and and maybe Gene Wolfe broadly, but these books for me, because I'm not really the biggest Gene Wolfe fan outside of these books. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm not complete on the author or anything like that. Um, the The thing that's fun about Book of the New Sun is you learn more stuff every time Severian goes back to something. Mm -hmm. Um, and so keeping a range of interpretations of any given event in these books open is beneficial in some ways, because when we return, we get different kind of gradients on it. And, and just to be frank, right? Like if Wolf wasn't interested in us, at least kind of picking at it a little bit and thinking about it more, it wouldn't come up anymore. You know, he, he is, Mm -hmm. I'm not on the in the world of like every piece of the book of the new Sun is it's the Lego death star. (laughs) <laughs> Every piece is where it goes. It's got a billion little things. In it. it makes a perfect orb of We're Lego done death. We're not talking about
1: puzzle box shows. I'm only talking about <laughs> Lego Death Star shows from now on.
0: That's right. You know, And so I think part of what Gene Wolfe – why I like Gene Wolfe is that there are parts that are that. You know what I mean? They're, they are so well – intricately put together, they're they're playful, they're using language, they're using all the different things that make up literature, right? They make up the thing that we can read and engage with to make something where if you can see all the pieces, you look at the forest and the trees and they kind of produce a different effect, right? Like the words themselves and then their context do different things. And that's fun. That's, you know, and you kind of require that toward the end of these books to like get a lot out of it, I think. Right. Um, but also sometimes he's just writing stuff because he's Gene Wolfe and he's playful and he has a fun time, and I think you got to kind of bounce back and forth between those those different ways of doing stuff. This is a place where I do think there's some intricacy going on, precisely because we keep going back to it. Um, if, if, if Gene Wolfe didn't care, we wouldn't return.
2: Right. Well, and I mean like case in point, the uh story about Master Werinfrid, right? Mm-hmm. The the execute yes, right, yes. the executioner who by his canny design can serve two different audiences mm-hmm. at once who take his executions as being both like an execution and salvation, right? Like Severian mm-hmm. brings this story up, doesn't do the connection for us, uh but like it's there for us the reader to be like, "Oh, wait a minute." Right, Severian has been in sort of a similar situation. He's also done something that might be salvation and might be murder, mm-hmm.
3: uh, yes.
2: and that, furthermore, like because Severian is discussing that in the context of being a writer, this is Wolf too, right? Wolf serving the many masters of interpretation.
3: Well, and yeah. again, it's yeah. the
1: conversation with Dorcas about the three types of meaning, one layered on top of the other. Uh, this this whole section is also a lot of a lot of Gene talking to us about what it is to be a writer. But then also, mm-hmm. there's something interesting here about reading this stuff because uh, I didn't read along with Homestuck Made This World, right? But whenever y- y'all talked about Hussy writing about being an author or a creator, it felt like the end of that was they were trying to say something about being a writer or a creator. There are times here where I find that what Wolf is trying to do is – Talk about the act of creation. You know, metaphorize that with with uh, theology or with you know um, uh, something that this this previous master of the torture has said. But then, actually, what what Gene is trying to get at is like something about being a person in public and having a persona, right? Or like mm-hmm. living life and. Creating meaning in the lowercase way that everybody is constantly doing, the 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 it resolves to being a metaphor for writing, only so it can then open back up to be a metaphor for life in the way that Severian sees the world, and now Dorcas, you know, says all men are torturers, right? The way that mm-hmm. that that Severian says the whole world is made of guilt in in the yeah. vision that he has, and I think that that is I think kind of an interesting thing that we can come back to again and again here too.
3: Yeah.
0: I, I Just while we're talking about Master Waringford, because uh, we, th- it's perfectly fine to just cover it all here, I do want to say – I just want to read the little paragraph here. Um, I recall that one winter day when cold rain beat against the window of the room where he gave us our lessons, Master Malrubius, perhaps because he saw we were too dispirited for serious work, perhaps only because he was dispirited himself – told us of a certain Master Werenfred of our guild who, in olden times, being in grave need, accepted remuneration from the enemies of the condemned and from his friends as well, and who, by stationing one party on the right of the block and the other on the left, by his great skill made it appear that, to each that the result was entirely satisfactory. Just in this way, the contending parties of tradition pull at the writers of history. Yes, even autarchs one desires ease the other richness of experience in the execution of the writing. And I must try in the dilemma of master Werenfred, but lacking his abilities to satisfy each this I have attempted to do. And I, and as you're alluding to, Michael, I really like the master Werenfred like story here. I I like it for two reasons. One, it makes it really clear. The like, uh, uh, is your uncle. Palamon's your (laughs) uncle. Uh, Malrubius is your dad thing, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Like, he, you know, uh, Master Malrubius knew we were too bummed and he was too bummed, and so he just told us stories. Like, you know, there, there, we get a lot more Malrubius in this section. I really like that. But the second one is that Wolf does a really great, uh, like, replacement here. So he gives us a little, you know, two-sentence uh, legend here. Master Fred convinced two people, two different groups, that what they got, that they each got what they wanted, right? That the execution went the way they wanted it to. And then uh, Severian immediately says, and that is how reading happens, right? I can give two groups two different things, or I can try to with the same act. Um, but the the thing he 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 does to us in this, what Master Werenfred is doing, because he allegorizes this or metaphorizes this as the act of writing, and not just the act of explaining events themselves, mm-hmm. right that, that events themselves, the things he is showing us. The literal meaning of the Master Warrenford story—that you can see something—and there are two separate but acceptable meanings for it, right? He mm-hmm. dodges us away from that entirely to say, "Oh, these are different types of readership. Y'all want mm-hmm. style, or you want <laughs> substance? You want ease, right?" I'm trying to help you all, but the literal meaning of that story is that one image, a symbol, uh, you know, a an event that happens could have two entirely separate meanings from them. And yet, here's the thing that matters. This is like the core of the Master Warrenford story. Either that person died or they didn't. Uh-huh. There is a mm-hmm. thing that occurred mm-hmm. there, right? There, there is something, and he dodges that. He doesn't say what Master Warrenford actually did. Um, but, but it is notable to me that this... Little couple sentences has a lot of resonance with a lot of what we've talked about so far. And again, this is a place where the kind of fandom um, discussion around Book of the New Sun, Severian lies, you know, as a, as a kind of phrase, is wholly insufficient, I think, to dealing with the actual text, uh, which is like Severian uh, he might not know when things actually happen. He might be leaving gaps, things like that.
1: I may have read this differently, or maybe this is just. When I read this, it was not whether the person lived or died, it was whether they had a painful or painless death, which is unknowable to the two even the person holding the sword, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, to but a, an actor painless or painful. Right. Uh, it is true that it was either painful or painless, right? I, yeah, that yeah, is you're true. Right, you're right. Uh, but, but it isn't as clean as lived or died. Lived or died. Right? You're, you are correct. There's a lot it of is. ambiguity there. Well, And then the thing that I love about this section is he sets all this up to, to talk about what it is to be an author. And then he goes, um, I'm going to tell you about a dream. I mean, uh, I'm not telling you <laughs> about this dream because it's important. I give it only because it puzzled me at the time and it will provide me with satisfac- satisfaction to relate it. And it's almost, mm-hmm. um, you know, in this dream, he gets quizzed, but it's almost like he's quizzing you in this moment. He's like, yes. all right, I said what it is to be a writer. Now, really quick, I'm going to write you something. Watch. What am, what am I doing? What, what's your perspective on this? And I, I really love that it's almost like a dare. Yeah. Um, like, okay. Is it because it, it you're only telling me this because it's it's satisfying for you to relate it? it? Is it because it it is puzzling you? Is there something else going on in this dream? Um, and then this is the dream in which in which uh, Malrubius comes back. It's Melrubius right? In this section,
3: mm-hmm. yeah. Melrubius mm-hmm. and uh, Triscale
1: comes back and says, "All right, tell me about governance. Tell me where authority <laughs> lies. Um, tell me what the." the the seven what is it, the seven shapes the seven sorts of governance is that what it is
2: yes something and that's like, like that like yes
1: it's it's attachment to the king or the monarch then it's attachment to the bloodline of the monarch then it's attachment to like the state and then to the representatives of the state and then eventually at the end of this line is the the it's it's allegiance to or attachment to the abstraction and idealized form of the mm. idea of the state that then is is you know kind of realized in the body of the governor of the actual legislators or the actual representatives or council or whatever. An um, abstraction conceived
0: as including the body of electors, other yes. bodies giving rise to them, and numerous other elements
1: largely ideal. And then he is asked, of course, which is the earliest and which is the latest, which is the highest. Uh, and he says that's the order it's given. Started with the monarch, eventually becomes this idealized form. And then and then he goes okay well well um uh, which is the kind that you have to the divine entity, and he's like who uh, I don't know I'm real sleepy and and grumpy and I don't <laughs> really have uh, he says I <laughs> he says. Um, I became profoundly aware of my physical surroundings the sky above my face and all its grandeur seemed to have been made solely for my benefit and to be presented for my inspection now I lay upon the ground I, I lay upon the ground as upon a woman and the very air that surrounded me seemed a thing as admirable as crystal and as fluid as wine answer me severian the first if i have any to the person of the monarch yes because there is no succession right god doesn't have a bloodline the animal that rests beside you now would die for you. Of what kind is his attachment to you? The first, there was no one there. I sat up. Malrubius and Triskel had vanished, yet my side felt faintly warm. And it's like, all right, which way did the blade come down? Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you tell me. Yeah.
0: Great. It's good stuff. Mm-hmm. This is the, uh, May, perhaps the third time that we have seen Malrubius. Yeah, I Post-death post there, there's, yeah yeah there there is a uh uh after the day after the his raising ceremony, right? When he's mm-hmm. hung over and barfing in a bucket, he looks up and mal Rubius is there. Um and we got this and then we hear uh <laughs> which you is know, he the,
1: barfed that time too. This motherfucker <laughs> barfs every time he cuts someone's head off, I swear. <laughs> he does, it's true. He doesn't like it. Mm-hmm.
0: he's he, he's a big
1: boy in the book.
0: But he's not a big boy in in real life. But uh, and yeah, in Triscell, uh, the uh, this is maybe the second time post Triskel going away that we've seen Triskel, Right? He
2: heard yeah. Triskel's
0: feet down mm-hmm. the the hallway at one point.
2: Yeah, the first mention of Mal- Malrubius, I believe, is actually when Severian is drowning. He has the memory of the way right. that Malrubius would like bang on the bulkhead to wake right. the apprentices. Uh, right. then the second time uh, is, as you said, after when he's hungover after his little festival, and he hears uh, Triskel in the hallway as well, and then this is, yeah, time number three with both of them again. It's yeah. interesting. It's something. Yeah.
1: Well, we go, can we go back to the first of these chapters? Because there's another yep. thing I want to I talk about, because I think there's a, another con- conceptual framework that gets deployed throughout this, and is worth thinking about with a lot of this, which is, he has this long um, uh, kind of thing. He has this long consideration. A- what is it to kill a person? What is a person? Yeah. Um, uh, he says, you know, unless the Killiarch decides to grant clemency uh, to to Agilis, who he has to go kill, um, uh, I would take, tomorrow I would take Agilis' life. <clears throat> no one can say what that means. The body is a colony of cells. I used to think of our oubliette when Master Plymon said that. Divided into two major parts, it perishes. But there is no reason to mourn the destruction of a colony of cells. Such a colony dies each time a loaf of bread goes in the oven. If a man is no more than such a colony, a man is nothing. But we know instinctively that a man is more. What happens then to the part that is more? And continues to think about this, right? And think about, Mm -hmm. okay, does that part... Uh, uh, you know, and, and gets kind of, you know, fantasy about it, right? Okay, well, does that part go to space? Does, does that part <laughs> sink into the earth below us? I don't mm-hmm. know. But Master Gerlose, who has performed a great many executions, used to say that only a fool worried about making some failure of ritual. Um, like, it doesn't matter how you do it. Uh, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you, if you you if you get your own cloak bloody. It doesn't matter if you hurt the person. The thing that really matters is that you do the damn thing, and that you don't lose your nerve, and that you 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 give the the execution that was ordered to you to give, um, and stop worrying about all the other stuff, the ritual and also the philosophy of it. Um, and I think that there is that 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 question is also a two sides of the of the sword, uh, you know, viewing inwards thing. Um, and I think this idea of like what is a person is a person just a collection of cells also recurs throughout this section. Uh, and I suspect we'll come back to again and again, what is a person feels kind of an important question in this book. Yeah. Oh yeah. Th- this is going to come back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I especially like the, the bit where he's like, you know, the body, I, the body is a colony of cells. I used to think of it, of our Oubliette when master Plymon said that, because again, it's very in casting the physical reality of the citadel uh, and the the Tower of Torturers out into the world, um, and mm-hmm. and mapping other things onto it in that way. Uh, I think that that's that's a, a very fun thing for him to just consistently do.
0: Yeah, having finished this first book, it, uh, it's very clear that even as the you know as the autark, and he tells us somewhere explicitly. Uh, in the section we were talking about where in fred over there he's like i'm the autark now mm-hmm. you know he says mm-hmm. that very explicitly
2: right. like i'm an autark and i still have to serve my audience yeah. yes right right yeah that's how it
0: comes up um but the it's very clear throughout this right that he still thinks through the world in terms of metaphors from his youth yeah. you know that that that's not like a thing that we are bringing to this book or whatever regularly throughout this he is metaphorizing all kinds of shit through the tortures right and we gotta remember all the way back, right? You know, uh, 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 a man is a torturer to everything he loves, right? You know that—that's the foundational uh, relationship that Severian sees in the world. Um, and we we might want to have that in mind too, going forward.
2: Well, at some point in this reading, is it not when he mentions um, a kind of desire to restore the torturers to kind of a place of pride? Or am I? Yeah, m- that's in thats, that's that in that yeah. same
1: section. I want to say where he's like. <laughs> Even now. And he doesn't say like, even now that I've betrayed them. Obviously he said that he's betrayed them before. But there is that sense of like despite it all, you know, I uh there was a time in the Torturers and the and the guild and the tower were high, you know, highly, highly praised or whatever. Um I'm trying to find it, but I don't know exactly where it is. So
0: Yeah, i g I'll find it. Yeah. What uh where are we gonna go next? Hey, uh well, let's talk about the Agiles is is death really quick. Sure. Okay. Um if only because uh the, these are Agilis and Agia are the two two very talkative characters in this book so far, right? You know, just mm-hmm. in terms of like words on the page, we get a lot from them. Nothing from either. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously Agia is not here. Although, again, well, you know, th- this is my big question, right? And I still have it: is uh, you know, science fantasy? Uh, what's going on here? Are they part of the same person? <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Because. Uh Severian says that when he kills Agilus, he can hear Edge scream from somewhere, this like unearthly howl. And that uh, maybe if even if she's not there, she still felt it as mm-hmm. it happened. She knew the exact moment that it occurred. And there's some like twin stuff going on there, right? You know, the way that twins get deployed in literature and that's whatever. But I, you know, I I kind of want it to be science fiction in some way, right? Like I want them to be. <laughs> You know, you know, I don't know, psychically connected or
1: something. Well, it's fun to have that in mind and think about the previous conversations where when Adidas is like, "Whatever you're thinking, it's true," and in Adelis's mind, he's like, "We have the, we have the twin ESP. We have the, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we are connected over time and space, like all twins are." Yeah, that's right. And Severian's like, "Whatever I think is true, hmm, hmm, what am, <laughs> what am I thinking? Probably something gross." <laughs>
2: Notably, never really says what he might think about.
3: No,
1: this. yeah. <laughs> nope. uh, I also love at the death. The other thing, besides Agilis not saying much, you get a good sense of like, okay, this is a this is a big to do. You know, I, I think we all at some point in our lives learn like, oh right, public executions are like a form of entertainment. You already talked mm-hmm. about the people who are like the kind of like groupies, the the torturer groupies, the the carnifex groupies. But also, mm-hmm. I love this stuff on, about the aftermath and the troublesome nature of that, that like, all right, here's the thing. I have to stay up here and hold up the head and be like, oh, I did it. I killed the bad guy. And everyone goes, yeah. But then you got to get rid of the body. And, and no one wants to do that because – you know, you, you don't want to touch a dead body. If you're a, if you're a uh, an armature, if you're a cavalryman, I don't want to touch the gross dead body that just got executed. Let someone else do that. I'm above all that. But you can't let like regular people do it because regular people are going to try to like parade it through the streets, and that's not good for order. So what we did is we tied or they'll try it. to eat it. <laughs> right, you're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I skipped the. I skipped. Yes, you're right. We have. That's why you have to go bury it quickly because if you don't, the corpse <laughs> yeah. eaters will get it. Yeah. Dropped and moved on. Don't worry about it so much. Except I guess we already know about the corpse eaters, right? Because this is why the the necropolis gets shut down at night. Right.
0: Uh, yeah, right? we don't really know. We don't, we know that people are stealing
2: corpses. I guess here and, and we robbing can go. Graves,
1: it's right. corpse eater time, baby. Right.
2: Um yeah. he does we not make live this in a connection. world where corpses unattended will be spirited away for some purpose <laughs> or another. That is what we know.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. And and so what he what they end up doing in this case is um, they they and I said legally they got to be dragged. You also can't like put it up on a cart and and wheel it away. This is someone who has been who's done something bad enough that they need to get executed. You can't give them the dignity of not dragging them to wherever their final resting place is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in this case, they they put it behind some sort of like beast of burden uh, and tied it with you know a couple of ropes and there's this great line the animal had not been consulted however and being more of the laborer than the warrior kind took fright at the blood and tried to bolt we had an interesting time of it before we were able to get poor agilis into a quadrangle form which uh which the public was excluded great yeah oh, a quadrangle from which the public was excluded there we go yeah yes
0: yeah I gotta give him a little square <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> some sort the uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's really interesting to me that Agilus is is totally made silent here. Mm-hmm. That it messes up, mm-hmm. you know, rhetorically, it messes up the shape of the thing if Agilus speaks from the, you know, from the the block. Yeah, um, and I don't I don't know quite what to do that yet with that yet, and you know, I, I don't think it's spoilers to say that that Severian is going to Thrax, the city of windowless rooms to go and work as a carnifex. He's going to execute another, at least a couple more people over the course of these books. Right. Like that, that is in fact the quest narrative that we're on. Um, and it might be worth thinking about that, about the way that the other executions we see happen over the course of the, these books, mm-hmm. how they get depicted.
1: Um, well, the thing uh, because, here that yeah. I would suggest is like, not suggest, but like my reading of it at the time, reading this now is like, we know he is, he loses himself to Reverie and right, to right. his own, you know, stories in his own head. We know he speaks his own stories out loud when he wants to hear them. That's the type of guy he is. He loses himself in distraction. Uh, I think he just didn't care is what I'll put forward for now. <laughs> he just didn't yeah. care. He, yes, yeah. Atlas at this point is like, all right, Severian, I have another plan. Let's do X, Y, Z. Y, Z. Doesn't He doesn't even hear it. He doesn't care um, because we know that that's the type of thing that Severian – does. Uh, that's that's what I'll put forward for now. Ever since yeah. earlier when you were talking about um, the fact that you can read the text different ways, I've been imagining a sort of like 999 or Frogware <laughs> Sherlock Holmes interface uh, putting up various interpretations of different sections or in my you? on the screen you know and unlike those games there isn't a way for it to always resolve cleanly but for now that's the one i've put up in my in my mind palace is uh severian during during uh, execution severian is blank and then you can drag a bunch of words in there and i've written distracted question mark is what <laughs> is what i've added Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I mean, I think a thing that, that in terms of the words on the page, a thing that really supports that is there's no dialogue in Chapter mm-hmm. 31 until someone compliments Severian. <laughs> like, it, yeah. it is just pure exposition description, right? Like, uh, in kind of first person, he's telling you everything that happens, he's doing some theorization of the stuff, he executes Agilus, hears the scream, there's a paragraph break here, and, it, and there's no dialogue until... Uh, he watched everything, the poor tree said, and he was quite pleased. He instructed me to tell you that you and the woman who travels with you are welcome to spend the night here if you wish, right? So literally, Severian, in, in terms of the thing, recounts nothing to us in dialogue other than the compliment. Mm-hmm. So I think that, I think that your read of that makes sense and gives us a sense of Severian's interiority, right? That. Right. Uh, he also was barfing somewhere in here, right? Like, I don't right know. Right during that break, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hard to know. Um, before the, we get the, too far
1: from it, do we have to go back and talk about Dorcas and he having sex?
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, actually, I think that probably is a good way to get to the next thing. Can can I Mike let also me say had a, something
1: though? I want to make sure we don't leave this scene before we're done. Sorry. Well, I want could, to
0: say a quick clarification of a thing from earlier so then we can like move anywhere beyond this. Sure. Mm-hmm. But I just I need to put it here. In a previous episode of this program, I floated the idea that one could take the descriptive adjectival uh, relationship of exultants, Thecla in particular, and uh, I I posited a what if scenario. Mm-hmm. What if Thecla is like a straight up alien? What if she's like a gray? Yeah, you know. And I didn't really mean that as I believe that Thecla is a gray. Right? You think, I think that Thecla Thekla gray? The, I got it. I
1: no, I don't believe. No, well, no, 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 no. I don't believe it. I don't believe that. I think I'm a gray now. Wait, no, I don't. You're not From a gray. my perspective over here, you've both turned into grays. No, no one is a gray. <laughs> no, I we, agree. I agree. Well, we
0: you're gotta, both we grays. Gotta go, well, we got to go back. All right. Hold on. We got to re record episode two. <laughs> we got to go back. No, so I, but I, I, I floated that much, you know, like hours ago in, in, in listening time. I floated that in order to put some pressure on, well, we just assume Thecla is a woman who's a little bit taller than Severian. In fact, if you're paying attention to the language, it's a little bit different and suggests some other stuff. I don't think that uh, exultants are greys. Like, that's not my mental image. My mental image is, I was talking with someone in the Discord about, my mental image is like, they're kind of like the people from Prometheus. You know, the, the space jockeys from the Alien franchise, right? They're mm-hmm. uh, bigger... Trawler more substantial they're like uh, they've been Photoshop uh, scale tooled by like 20% <laughs> right uh, and some of them they, have been deep <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Uh they were saved weird and uh, in uh, here the reason I'm bringing that up here is that because I don't think we're going back to it again. Um, we get even more stuff here about exultant blood being mm-hmm. its own thing, right? Mm-hmm. So, literally in the beginning of chapter thirty, uh, the people Michael that you were talking about before, of, of which Hethor is one of them, uh, one man was taller than I. Surely the illegitimate son of some exultant, mm-hmm. right? And then he says a bunch of fat phobic shit about him, but yeah, sure does. Uh, but right, like exultant blood is visible in in people in this world. Right. Uh, they they know if you're a part of the family or not. So it's so a thing worth keeping keeping in mind that these are bigger people. They're larger. They they might be part of some different species. I don't think they don't look like greys. Okay, they look like people. They're just bigger, mm-hmm. and are white. They're like extremely <laughs> white. But uh, sorry to interrupt with my my uh, previous correction.
2: No, I think this is actually a, a, a kind of good hinge for what I did want to bring up, which was, uh, before we get into Dorcas and everything, because mm-hmm. I think uh, that can be, like, the next move, uh, I will talk about St. Augustine uh, and his arguments about how you interpret texts and how those are and are not present in uh, the three ways of meaning that Severian discusses with Dorcas, uh, as you alluded to, that I, I have some stuff I want to talk about, but... Um, so this is at the end of chapter thirty-two, or not the end, but uh, sort of in the middle of chapter thirty-two, uh, where uh, Severian and Dorcas have seen uh, the, the the castle uh, we thing. Have to, and, wait. We have to wait. say what that is. What I mean, I mean, come on, what is it? No, I don't no, know. I mean, we
1: have to say we have to describe that sequence. You have to give that sequence. Okay. A, a moment to breathe because I think it informs the three meanings. I think if you hear, okay. if you're a listener who's only listening to us and is not reading the book and has i'm i'm okay, I'm, okay. I'm acting as a writer here this is to, to this is to entertain me alone perhaps but we i would love you to describe what happens because i think that that shapes the way the meaning's conversation goes
0: slowly okay. but surely we are going to work our way into just reading the book live. yes well we're just going <laughs> yes. to create an audiobook of the book
1: i'm not saying you have to read this text <laughs> yeah. but i would love for michael to summarize what happens that night
0: Yeah, do it, Michael. It's only one
1: paragraph. Do it. Do it, it,
0: Michael. I'm just
1: going to read it
2: because it's good. (laughs) I am. It's just good. But I will tell you, summary, what has happened. Uh, Severian has pulled a gem out of his little fanny pack and he's like, holy crap, I got the claw of the conciliator. How did this get here? Uh, You were looking for the shadow of the torturer. You didn't even know the claw of the conciliator was here the whole time. (laughs) Fuck. Uh, And so then Dorcas is also... Uh, There And she's like, wow, you've got some cool gem. Uh, And then suddenly she gets distracted. So uh, Severian is like, oh, Aja must have put it here, um, etc, etc, etc. Then he says, Dorcas was no longer staring at me. Her face was lifted and turned toward the city in the sky glow of its myriad lamps. Severian, she said, it can't be. Hanging over the city like a flying mountain in a dream was an enormous building, a building with towers and buttresses and an arched roof. Crimson light poured from its windows. I tried to speak to deny the miracle even as I saw it. But before I could frame a syllable, the building had vanished like a bubble in a fountain, leaving only a cascade of sparks. That's
1: a UFO.
3: That's no, a I goddamn
1: it was a flying board. saucer. Nah, no, it's just a sky building. That's one of those Warhammer forty thousand space cities. <laughs> we'll fly around and destroy the infidels or whatever happens in Warhammer forty.
0: <laughs> I do. I like that later. Dorcas is like, yeah, when it left, like, when it left. And
1: she's like, yeah, it, it went. Well, yeah. and she sees it first too, right? Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. She she talks about it uh, in a way that suggests she saw it launch. Right? She yeah. says it it yeah it yeah. leaped up. Um, so they, they, they see that they see Columbia from Bioshock infinite, uh, (laughs) and, uh, the, uh, uh, then they're like walking and they're like, what the heck was that? It Uh, really
0: is a moment where they're like,
2: fuck, I I guess i need to walk
0: through my fantasy city for a little while to really (laughs) rub that off.
2: Uh, and notably Severian in, in the description of that in retrospect, in the narration, right? Says it was a miracle. Yeah. yeah. Um. But then they're talking, uh, and they're trying to figure out what to do with it. And Severian says the Brown Book. This is one of the books that he uh, took to Thecla. Is a collection of the myths of the past, and it has a section listing all of the keys of the universe, all the things people have said were the secret after they had talked to mystagogues on far worlds, or studied the popolva of the ma- magicians, or fasted in the trunks of holy trees. Thecla and I used to read them and talk about them, and one of them was that everything, whatever happens, has three meanings. The first is its practical meaning, what the book calls the thing the plowman sees. The cow has taken a mouthful of grass, and it is real grass and a real cow. That meaning is as important and as true as either of the others. The second is the reflection of the world around it. Every object is in contact with all others, and thus the wise can learn of the others by obscuring the first. Or by observing, I'm sorry, I'm getting Augustine in here too early about <laughs> obscuring things. But um, uh, the wise can learn of the others by observing the first. That might be called the soothsayer's meaning, because it is the one because the one such people use when they prophesy a fortunate meeting from the tracks of serpents, or confirm the outcome of a love affair by putting the elector of one suit atop the patroness of another. And the third meaning, Dorcas asked. The third is the transubstantial meaning. Since all objects have their ultimate origin in the pan Creator, and all were set in motion by him, so all must express his will, which is the higher reality. You're saying what we saw was a sign. I shook my head. The book is saying that everything is a sign. The post of that fence is a sign, and so is the way the tree the tree leans across it. Some signs may betray the third meaning more readily than others. Uh, and then uh, Dorcas says, It seems to me that if what the Shatlin Thekla's Thé- 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 book says is true, then people have everything backward. We saw a great structure leap into the air and fall. Basically, she ends up saying... Um, we are in a weird position because it feels to me very easy to see the transubstantial meaning of what we saw, but we can't work it backward to like what the plowman sees, mm-hmm. right? We, we can't yeah. take the, the big elaborate thing and figure out what was the literal thing that we saw. So we can talk a little bit more about what the text actually says, but uh, one thing that I did the second I read this is I pulled out uh, my copy of St. Augustine's uh, On Christian Doctrine just to cross-reference some stuff that's going on here. Uh can you set up my, a
1: little bit of, of who St. Augustine is in terms yeah. of the importance to Christianity and the church, so so to speak?
2: So uh he is uh what would we call an early church father, uh living and writing in like you know the the like early Middle Ages or sort of like the late classical period, right? Uh Roman Empire times like fifth century stuff, right? Like four hundred. Yes. Yes. Uh and I mean the the to to communicate to you just how important this is, the the document that I am getting ready to talk about on Christian doctrine is literally a guidebook for how to read the Bible, an attempt to kind of standardize how people are practicing textual hermeneutics on scripture. Um uh and it is important, right? It, it exerts a a strong influence over uh like Church history from this point forward, Uh, and the reason that this is happening in uh, his time is because we are seeing the shift from, like, the Roman Empire uh, being a pagan uh, uh, empire to a a Christian one. Like, the uh, older pagan institutions of, like, the the schools of rhetoric and so on and so forth um, uh, are being defunded. Uh, the, like the, uh, empire is not funding like pagan rhetors anymore. And Augustine is kind of like sliding in here to say like, okay, and here's like what a foundation to a Christian education might look like, right? Here is a way of, uh, to, to speak about this in kind of like broader terms, right? Augustine is trying to implement a kind of disciplining mechanism, uh, for how people, uh, interact with the text of the scripture and the types of meanings that are therefore produced because he is overtly concerned with uh, divergent reading practices in the ways that uh, different people will read the same scripture in different ways uh, that result in sectarianism uh, or as he will often describe it as, a, a, you know, superstition or a heresy.
0: It used to be different when I was growing up. You know, we had <laughs> pagan rhetors. Mm-hmm. The state funded them. You know, it's just... It, Neoliberalism's really come for everything.
1: <laughs> austerity measures, really. Yeah,
0: austerity culture. You know, I, we, you can't, you go down to the corner, you can't find a pagan redder. You look you look at the four corners of the street, four-way stop, no pagan redder.
2: Mm-hmm. Right? What is that? Yeah. Where are the groves to which I am to send my young men? Yeah. They're closing the baths, I heard. Yeah. <laughs> there used to be a sacred tree for
1: meditation. <sighs> And what did that sacred tree mean? I don't know. I don't know how to interpret a sacred tree anymore. Yeah. (laughs) It's
2: different. Uh, So uh, one of the things that Augustine does um, is he divide? He, he well, he has a, a theory of signs, right? He says that there are things and there are signs. Notably, right? These are things that the uh, De- Severian and Dorcas are talking about, right? We saw a sign, but they don't know what the thing is. Uh, Augustine says that there is a thing. Uh, we make things into signs, or we can derive signs from things. So uh, there are things that are literal signs. Um. Let's say, and this is roughly equivalent to something like what the plowman sees. Uh, A literal sign is like, you know, the word uh, ox or cow refers to a thing called an ox or a cow. Um, And he says that uh, uh, one of the ways that he describes this, because this is kind of the theory of language that he's working with, is that in some way the Words that we come up with are attempts at, like, we the, the, the human cognitive faculty or whatever, right? When people make up language, uh, when they make up words, they try to make words based on some sort of similitude, right? The word has a similitude to the object in whatever way. That's why um, we call it money. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> everybody yeah, wants it, yeah, right. Uh, and, uh, so the, the, uh, comparison he makes is something it's, you know, actually very, very handy, right? He says, uh, 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 smoke is always a sign that there is fire, right? Um, language, we want to be the smoke to the fire of the original thing. However, this gets more complicated, uh, because Augustine readily admits that, uh, different objects appear to different people in different ways. And so this is where different languages come from, is that people experience the same world, but try to describe it in different ways. And in that process, uh, come up with a different language, uh, which is built into this kind of process of figuration, right? So figurative signs are kind of the second order of signs. And this is when, uh, say, I am talking about an ox, and I say something about an ox, but someone who is listening to me is like, oh man, that sentence about an ox that Michael just said, that ox was a metaphor uh for the planter who labors in the field rather than the actual animal right Mm. um so now is this related to uh hand me the ox
1: sure yeah same yeah Mm -hmm. well like yes right because because the ox in that sentence is is about the person who's going to plug it in and play some sweet tunes Right. Like right. the stand in theres a there's a s there is a stand-in there. Where you when you say when you say don't ever hand, you know, uh Cameron the the, the ox, uh I'm not He's saying play uh, throat Tibetan throat singing. Well, like I'm not saying you're gonna destroy the cable. I'm saying, yeah, you're gonna play some bad music, right? Yeah, and it's yep. about you, it's not about the cable. And all the cable will leap away from his hands. I'm gesturing at something else here about you, right?
2: Right. Right. Uh, And actually, one thing that I want to say just to make this clear, because I think if you're listening, you might think this is where it's heading. The three ways of meaning that Severian outlines here are not a recapitulation of what Augustine says. They're, in fact, very different. But I think those differences uh, are worth talking about uh, because of what they maybe bring into relief. So uh, the problem with figurative language, uh, as Augustine says— right, is that it is ultimately shaped by convention, that in uh, Greece, the uh, letter uh, chai, right, or chi, uh, which is their version of an X. Kiliarch uh, or kiliarch, depending on how you read it. Right, mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Right. This is what he means: is that there are even differences in pronunciation, and this is why he says that uh, people who get head up about pronunciation have weak character. Because mm. basically, he's saying if you all you have to do is apply like a slightly, like the the slightest modicum of effort to understand that another person is living in the same world as you and attempting to talk about the same thing. Uh, Anyway, the Chi in Greece uh, takes on various types of symbolic meanings uh, that may not be the same meanings that uh, it takes on in Rome, right? The same figure uh, can mean two different ways in two different places. Uh, So, Uh, one of the things that this means is that in order to read scripture says Augustine uh, you can't just like look at scripture and try to interpret it off Like whatever is coming into your head, uh, because he acknowledges uh, scripture was written at different times in different places in different languages, and it's often been translated. So you have to have knowledge of the process of translation. You have to have knowledge of the cultures in which these things were written, uh, and you have to be able to contextualize what you're reading so you know when you're to take something in scripture literally or figuratively. Um, because when you start taking things that should be literal as figurative or things that should be figurative as literal, ah, that leads us into superstition, right? Or misapprehension or heresy or what? Damn. Have you.
0: Yep. Get them. Yep. Mm-hmm, Augustine.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, now the, 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 you know the the other issue here is that like within the realm of figuration, or the, rather, the realm of figuration is subject to convention, and it is within uh, the realm of convention that we have all human commerce, right? All societies are built out of convention uh, in one way or another. Uh, And there is basically like good convention or bad convention, right? Mm -hmm. That uh, uh, convention can be uh, basically what people do person to person in order to communicate and kind of like make language and build a society together. Um, But it can also, when uh, misprisons or like misinterpretations uh, get codified, uh, that lets in. Augustine talks about demons, particularly uh, in terms of superstition. Things like uh, being able, like astrology is a big one. Right. Uh, the idea that you can read the stars at the moment of a person's birth in a way that will, uh, you know, uh, uh, tell the story of their entire life up until the moment of their death. Uh, so this is actually what Severian says is number two. Right. What the soothsayer sees and notably Severian's theorizations of meaning is. Uh, make place for a thing that Augustine is trying to eject because ultimately for Severian's Mm -hmm. uh, kind of, you know, reading from the book here, uh, the third point that everything falls into the will of the pan creator, um, that everything is potentially a sign uh, is it's, it's an odd thing, right? Uh, It doesn't quite fit with the, uh, I mean, at least the Augustinian way of reading the world, which is that, Uh, there are, like, there are right and wrong ways, right? That there are misprisons that are going to lead you astray. Now, they might also, well, not might, they will, right? This is also Augustine's point, is that all things will ultimately serve the will of God. Um... But until we get there, Augustine wants to give us a kind of mechanism of division or winnowing, of figuring out what is uh, kind of an accurate or a fair reading or an interpretation of a text versus what is something that is like, you know, stumbling over itself. Uh, And I think it's really interesting that Severian's... uh, kind of articulation here, right? The kind of, uh, uh, religion or like the, the religious perspective that he and Thecla can, uh, derive from this book is ultimately almost a kind of pantheism, right? Uh, now I think it's still a very Christian inflected pantheism because of kind of the, the unitary God figure, the pan creator. Uh, but, uh, it's just, it's, it's, interesting to me right that that superstitions uh may in fact in some way serve the will of the pan creator or like uh, augury right is not necessarily right. you can't demonic dismiss
1: that as as uh something not to be trusted it also produces meaning uh right. because meaning here is i mean like again you know uh i, I think that that uh, as as we often as you often say here biography is not destiny uh, uh, Gene Wolfe is a convert t- to Catholicism and likely mm-hmm. would have encountered, if not this particular Augustine uh, uh, reading – this style of you know mm-hmm. the the process of becoming catholic um, no, I, uh, I mean i'll i'll double down he definitely
0: did because okay. gene, gene Wolfe's whole thing is is he became a catholic because he wanted to marry his wife and that was part of the deal but then he became a huge nerd for catholic right. theology exactly. that's a well known okay. gene wolf fan. Well, then like so, yeah uh, certainly he read augustine this There's feels no so
1: much like you're reading and like Truly from the Catholic school background here, when I was a kid and was very Catholic, and I'm not anymore, uh, but, like, the religion courses were really fun because you end up getting a space to bounce off of these ideas, especially if you're someone who is like, I don't know about this church, but what are the, like – it's interesting to think about some of these bigger problems around metaphysics and ethics and ontology and all of that stuff. And you're not being told that that's what those things. You might you might get the word ethics, but let me tell you, going to Catholic school, you are not being told what ontology was. Um, <laughs> uh, but you're 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 starting to work through your feelings around that stuff. And if you're someone who is also a creative writer or thinker, you're you're playing with some of this stuff. Okay, but wait a second. Wait a second. You know, one of the first thoughts I ever had as a child, you know, in third grade or whatever, was like, now wait a second. The Bible says, let there be light. I bet the Big Bang created a bunch of light. You put those two things together. That's compatible, baby. And Mm -hmm. and you're doing that sort of thing constantly. That's sort of the first thoughts you ever had? Yeah. I was like, I was like, peanut butter is good. (laughs) I mean, okay. I was like, what is snow? Uh yeah, but I was um surrounded by like poets, so oh, that's right. that's and right. and priests. That's I right. was born unto <laughs> unto an altar. You know this, you know what I mean. The, 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 you the, were introduced ear- to the misties early, <laughs> early exactly. Uh, but like you know it. what I mean when I say thoughts, right? No, I do. It's I like, do. and then I saw Stargate and was like, oh yeah, you know, like those yeah. are the when you're in that space, and then you have to go to Catholic school. And you're reading about Job and whatnot. You're like, okay, I can play with this. And Gene Wolfe didn't convert when he was six. He converted <laughs> when, when he was in his twenties or thirties. So he'd in read his a bunch 20, of books. Twenties. I think yeah. it was, I
0: did the math the other day. I think he was twenty-one or
1: twenty-two. Look at that. You know, yeah. I, couldn't be me. <laughs> uh, I was doing the other thing at that point. But you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, uh, good, good for, good for Gene, uh, and, and and very clearly a productive thing because what what. Entering any sort of, uh, in my experience, right, having bounced around some some faiths and whatnot over the years, mm-hmm. uh, entering a religious space often leaves you with frameworks, right? Um, yeah, you you end up in in some ways it can be really productive if you can then take that step back um, for the reasons that are happening in this conversation with Dorcas and and Severian, right? Like there's a they have a real remove from this in some ways, mm-hmm. right? Severian doesn't say. Um, there's a book with the secret in it. He says, oh, there's a book with all the different secrets in it. And here's one that I think I could apply to this moment, right? Um, In some ways, this is the same thing as as becoming an academic um, because (laughs) you might go into that process with a belief and then what you'll understand is what you have is one of many frameworks that you can put on an object or put on a situation or a text. Uh, Well, you hope that. (laughs) Well, yeah, I guess, you know what? I got out before I ran into too (laughs) many people who decided that they... They kept the one thing that they believed. So yeah, sometimes you find ideal. some people who uh, solved reality. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Uh, those people need to be broken. Uh, is the thing they need to be broken uh, from just there.
0: Just, uh, Austin Walker here to tell you to be broken on the
1: wheel. If you uh,
0: if you don't have enough frameworks,
1: I think that they've had a, a bad academic experience. If they've left uh, academia feeling they'd solved it, solved it all. That's my. I feel like someone they've been failed. Actually, you know. Um, wow. And I feel like that there is a. You're right; those people do exist, and they're the fucking worst. Um, mm-hmm. But the yeah. well, so uh, can
0: can we? Uh, wait, let me take one step back
1: because we we've been in
0: theology for a minute. We have.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So I want. I just want to reassert some basic facts on the ground. Uh, so Severian tells us right. The uh, Michael, you walked us through great three meanings, right? Mm-hmm. There's uh like the literal meaning. There's mm-hmm. uh, of like you know. There's a there's donkey eating food or whatever, right? And then uh, there's a symbolic meaning the king is a donkey, whatever, right? There's a donkey mm-hmm. eating food yeah. that must be the king right. eating the pablum from his advisors Ooh. you know, whatever and then there's the abstract meaning it's like I'm a, but a donkey to the reality of the world which is the lord or whatever right mm-hmm. you know so there are these like layers of abstraction and I think there is a compelling reading of these books that I don't subscribe to but there's a compelling reading that it's one that's very common in like the Gene Wolf world which is to say that that third meaning that kind of metaphysical reading the one that is transubstantial, that goes everywhere that, that it's kind of universal right that, that leads into Abstractions, that that one is the authorial meaning. That Mm -hmm. that this sometimes gets Uh read as ultimately there's what what we read on the page. There's what it might mean resonantly across the work, and then there's what Gene Wolfe meant by it. You know, Uh and and suggesting that there's a universal truth to the things that we are seeing on the page that can be puzzled out. You know, we talked about this in last episode a bit. I don't take that to be what this is saying, and certainly that is not the heuristic that we apply to these books, I don't think. You know, Austin, mm-hmm. as you just said, right? Like yeah. better to have a bunch of tools and to think through it with a bunch of tools than to find the one big meaning. But but I did want to say that here is that a lot of people use this as a way of getting to that thing of of, you know, the death of the author is not real. Big quotation marks around all of this. Gene Wolfe has it all solved for us, whatever. There, there are pieces in this book that are pretty direct that you could read in that way. However, much like uh, you know, sitting, uh, Yamar the Just sitting with that donkey or whatever on the thing, there's many different ways of reading the story, right? There's many different ways of reading this. And I take it to be much closer to what you just said, Michael, which is that this is Severian telling us about the rhetoric of this book itself, you know, right? That, that there are different kinds of things, which takes us all the way back to they saw a fucking spaceship. <laughs> well, <laughs> and can they I... can't even figure that out. They're like, I don't know. Is it a spaceship? We're like, yeah. what is that? I love that part of the book.
2: Yeah, I want to say one more thing from Augustine, if only because I think it's yep. a, a helpful thing to keep in mind. He does. Is he a, like,
0: and I looked up in the sky one time and I saw a fucking city <laughs> flying around.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, people did, right? That's the thing yes. is that Wolf yeah. is, in fact, drawing off of uh, like actual ancient and like medieval witnessing of uh, castles in the sky. Uh, yeah. Armies right? in
0: the sky, things like right? that. Very common.
2: Uh, but uh, uh, there's a, a kind of like, you know, process for reading that Augustine puts forth, uh, that I think is um, just, you know, useful, uh, particularly when we think about like things like our exultant's grays or whatever. Uh, so Augustine says, they're not, that, they're not great. They're not right. Right. They're not. But, uh, uh, Augustine says when you are reading and you encounter something obscure, obscurity or ambiguity arises from, uh, you know, the fact of human convention, right. And that convention changes, uh, due to time and history. Uh, so when you encounter obscurity, what do you do right in a text? Well, Augustine says the first thing you should do is interpret literally like as literally as possible. And once you have uh, interpreted something or read something literally, once that is accomplished, then you need to look for figuration and you need to uh-huh. make a judgment about whether or not figuration is something that applies. Is this intended to be literal or is it intended to be figurative? So an example he gives um, is that, uh, you know, an ignorance of things uh, makes fi- uh, figurative expressions obscure when we are ignorant of the natures of animals. So basically, are you reading something that doesn't seem Seem to make literal sense. That's a good clue that uh you are reading something that should be taken figurative. The example he gives is that uh uh thus the well-known uh uh, well-known fact that a serpent exposes its whole body in order to protect its head from those attacking it illustrates the sense of the Lord's admonition that we be wise like serpents. So, uh, argument there. It doesn't seem to make sense. Uh, for us to be told in, in Matthew, for us to be told to be wise, like serpents, what does that mean? Oh, well, if you know that conventionally serpents like will roll over and like hide their head and protect it with their body, then we can make this into a metaphor, uh, for, uh, basically the, you know, the, the persecution that Christians face. Like, uh, Mm. even as we are being injured in our persecution, uh, we do not waver in our faith, right? We protect our head where, uh, uh, you know, our faith lives, where, where belief lives through us. Right. Um, so aside from that, like, I think this kind of mechanism, uh, or actually the thing to observe there, uh, is that the, the linchpin for Augustine's kind of interpretation is ultimately in some way, right. That number three, what the pan creator in, intends, everything that Augustine is saying is geared toward proving, uh, Christianity true. So right. there's never going to be a point where he's like, well the Bible just doesn't make sense here right, right. Everything could be everything that seems to make uh, not make sense uh, could be plumbed for figurative meaning that becomes some kind of like little Christian aphorism or kind of like a, a, a you know little rule for life or whatever um, And that and, ends up being an almost teleological
1: way of reading right that like okay, everything in this has to end at upholding the church and and the broader faith and so it will pull me to whatever that interpretation is fundamentally
2: yes and, and what you were and, saying and, cameron this is yeah, yeah. this you are putting wolf in the center in in the position of the pan creator as sort of the <laughs> the all knowing one who upholds the meaning who is going to be validated by your her- hermeneutic process uh right. so you know The Homestuck show had me talking about this a lot in oblique ways, but at a certain point, like you have to uh, figure out where is your where is your figurative reading getting you? Like, what is the end point? Like, what is it geared toward? What is the output? And do you agree with that output?
0: Yeah. Yeah. You have to exercise judgment. Right.
2: Right. Uh,
0: Um, And and that is also another word that the word ethics goes by. Right. right, That those two things are tied in with one another.
1: So absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I just want to say one more one more important church thing. Uh, mm-hmm. which is the other, the other place my mind went to reading these three things, uh, these three meanings that Severian lays out from the, from the Brown book. Um, you know, At the end of it, uh, when, when he's going to the third one, when Dorcas says, you're saying what we saw was a sign, he goes, the book is saying everything is a sign. Um mm-hmm. uh, that fence uh,
0: post is a sign.
1: That, that fence pig post is, is a sign. sign. Yeah, <laughs> that dog literally. is a sign. <laughs> I, I, I want to ground this in like a real that, that is that is a thing that, you know, Saint Paul basically argued, right? Mm-hmm. Um in Romans and elsewhere, that like God is God reveals himself to everyone constantly in the world. Um this is a big part. This is a big part of the argument um, uh, for for uh, like natural revelation that says you. that uh, even if, if you're someone in the Christian faith who believes that there is that there is no freedom from judgment, that it doesn't matter that you never met a Christian missionary. If you didn't accept Jesus into your heart, you're going to hell. It's grounded in this argument that God is in everything already. And and mm-hmm. you've kind of failed to recognize the natural revelation around you. Um, and and Severian being like, you know, you have to understand. The person who wrote this said, the revelation's everywhere around us. <laughs> the the mm-hmm. everything is a sign, everything can be interpreted in all three of these ways, including the one that is the pan creator uh, showing us the ultimate or the, our ultimate origin in himself. Uh, I think it's an important thing to for for him to recognize that that is happening there. um because I think that, that ends up contributing to the fact that he's like, and I don't know what to really think about that. And I really don't know what to think about what I just saw. And for her, for Dorcas to be like, well, I definitely feel like I'm connected to the pan creator after seeing the UFO, but I don't <laughs> know what i but I don't know what it was. And I think that that I think is another important thing that's in conversation here,
0: yeah they 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 like they literally cannot work out. Uh-huh. What was it? And we see the media we are like oh, that's a spaceship.
3: <laughs> mhm.
1: That's a
0: big old spaceship yeah. flying around. <laughs>
1: uh or it was good. or it was um but I think it's important that she sees it leave and he doesn't because for him it could yeah. have been like a mystical city in the sky. You know what I mean? It it's it's um What's the one? What's the, What are the mystical city? Castlevania is one of them. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Xanadu? Is Xanadu one of them? I don't um, know if Xanadu flies. Does Xanadu not fly? Brigadoon? Does Brigadoon fly? I don't know if Brigadoon
0: <laughs> flies. <laughs> mm. There's got to be, is is there not a thousand and one? There's got to be a thousand and one night about Castle in the Sky, right? Has to be. Mm-hmm. Has to be. I, I feel pretty confident on that one. Yeah. Let, let me find out. Castle in the Sky. <laughs> in the
1: Sky. Castles in the Sky. Uh, Maybe not. I don't know. Uh, have you seen this? The Hawkman's floating metropolis in flash Gordon. Well, in the sky up. city. No, no. no, no. I think it's just this, this. I've decided. I've decided that it's this 1936 flash Gordon image. This is what it was. <laughs>
0: there it is. That's <laughs> oh, what they saw. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah, kind of, like, right? Kind yeah. of. Yeah. Yeah, that is kind of what they saw. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I I actually think it's a StarCraft II uh, battle cruiser. Okay, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah,
1: I do think it kind of sounds like a 40k. Um, yeah. Uh, what are those yeah. called? They have cool names. I don't know. It's kind of like
0: the Jupiter Ascending giant, uh, uh, like Catholic yeah. Church flying through the
3: sky. Yeah. yeah.
1: We don't it's have time those. for Jupiter Ascending, and it doesn't fit the overall paradigm of movies we're watching. But one mm-hmm. day we should watch Jupiter Ascending. <laughs> we should talk about it. It's great. I've yeah. taught it before. I I like it. Yeah, I'm on board.
0: Uh, people get too hung up. Uh, people get too hung up being embarrassed about it. That yep. was the thing I found when I um, when I taught it. Is people kept saying, "But his gun barks," <laughs> and I was like, "Well, what about all the other stuff that happened?" And they were like, "But the gun, it barks." Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to make fun of them. It's you know, sometimes it's embarrassing to watch a thing. But it was interesting that they like that. It there, there's something about that movie where to give yourself over to it does feel embarrassing. That's mm-hmm. interesting mm-hmm. to me. Um. Wow we really went off on a long tangent We talked
1: about them having sex and how weird Severian is about it but also Severian's in a way that's weird. like yeah, yeah that's you're just telling me What you're thinking in a, in a moment of your life When you were being dumb <laughs>
0: Yeah <laughs> Let me see where uh, uh, Where does that happen
1: Hold on uh, It's It's a few pages into night I believe mm-hmm. it's after the Heather break Oh that's right it's right, H- H- Heitor. If I say Heather, it's just going to sound like I'm talking about a, a person named Heather, which doesn't mm-hmm. really hit the. Well, scene. you're talking
0: about a person named H- Hethor, Hethor.
1: Yeah, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, the I love that, like all
0: the mechanics of inns that we have encountered. Like none of them have locks and doors. Some <laughs> don't have what ceilings. Like uh-huh. there, there's a lot of like in details. Uh, in They're far books.
1: away constantly. There's a bit later in this where where Jalenta is like, I really have to get to an inn. And um, uh, Dr. Tal- Talos was like, no, no, no. By the time we get there, all the roosters will be up crowing. And you'll be mad about it. Let's just go to sleep here. We have the stars right here. This is it. There's not allowed to be inns out this close to the wall. And so we'll just go to bed. Yeah, what a yeah, what a Dr. Well, yes. Let's talk about Dr.
0: Tellus in in just a minute. So basically they they have sex, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, it's some of the most cringe writing about sex anyone has ever produced on the planet. It was not
2: my body that was impaled, but hers. Oh my god. You know, I was literally about to read miserable.
3: (laughs) How miserable miserable is the the, right word.
1: Besides the literal mechanics of sex, I think the thing that's worth Mm -hmm. calling attention to is this thing in Severian that wished, I'll just read this. I asked if she were frightened. Yes, she said, then quickly, oh, not of you. Of what then? I was taking off my clothes. If she had asked me, I would not have touched her throughout the night, but I wanted her to ask. Indeed, I wanted her to beg, and the pleasure I would have had in abstinence would then have been at least as great as I thought as I would have had in possession, with the additional pleasure of knowing that on the next night, she would feel the more obliged because I had spared her. Mm-hmm. Whew, this is yep. a picture you- of a boy who loves to feel powerful, yes, especially yeah. uh powerful uh about women, around women over women hundred uh, percent that's that's the whole deal here,
0: right? It really the the sex is is yep. secondary to that. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, he says then we,
1: he says, yeah, the me ex- executing this power and this manipulation would literally be as pleasurable, if not greater than the yep. actual sex. Yep.
2: Mm-hmm. And this is coming right after Heathor's uh, description yes. of his paracoida, his uh, his real doll that he made such a beautiful box for. He took right. such good care of her that uh, she didn't even have to sleep in that box. She got to sleep in the bed with him.
1: Right. Which is again, Gene knows to some degree. I don't know if you know, we'll at the end of this all we'll have a big conversation about <laughs> Gene Wolf and misogyny, probably. Yep. Um, but Gene chose to put these two things uh, against each other directly, right? We get the the grossest guy being like, My my real doll meant a lot to me and someone took it away, and now I need you to go do cruelty to people. And the next scene is Severian like, just absolutely rolling around like a pig in shit in the sexual power dynamics of him and Dorcas. While Dorcas is being just, the by the way, the kindest, most loving person in the world over and over again to the degree that the rendering of her as a character is kind of suspect, you know? Yeah, yeah, uh, yes, that's the exact
0: thing I was going to say, right? Because right before this, she was slender, high-breasted, and narrow-hipped, strangely mm-hmm. childlike to me, though fully a woman, Yeah. right? Like, no. there is a... Uh, the way she is drawn as a character is... Physically in that. And she gets to be, you know, uh, tragically over the course of this is also not spoilers, but over the next little while, uh, certainly through Claw the Conciliator, uh, the innocent, literally historyless, you know, um, uh, icon of goodness Mm -hmm.
1: in the world. Um, And she was literally cast as innocence in the play three chapters
0: yes from
3: now, right
1: yes and Talos calls her in, he doesn't even know her name
0: yeah. he, he has, has never her seen her before <laughs> he's never seen her uh, but she says this too I, I alluded to this in the summary but this is also important so this is after they have sex she says I need you'll need your strength tomorrow then you don't care if we could have our way this is what she says if we could have our way no man would have to go roving or draw blood but women did not make the world all of you are torturers one way or another
1: Gene Wolf is like, fucking reach out and give me a high five. I, you know, I crushed that line. <laughs> That's how he's feeling having written that. I mean, yeah, look, he crushes
0: it like, <laughs> undeniably. He crushed that line. But so Dorcas gets gets to be even in sh- this one chapter, although she's been doing this the whole time. Right. She is modesty. She is uh, diminutive in power. She's diminutive in size. She is someone who needs to be governed and in some ways parented a little bit, although she's still a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she gets to be the voice of women are good or yeah. are innately good and unwilling to draw blood. And men are the ones who have to do that, pairing up with some of the um, – uh, campaigning speech, right. That we heard mm-hmm. about campaigning in the North, but also all of this has to be taken within the rhetorical framework that Severian told us all that stuff about Yamar, the just, right. And that yeah. women are more cruel. Women are more violent. Uh, Agia is going to, <laughs> uh, you know, she's somewhere in the world, uh, thinking about what happened to her brother, drawing hexes uh, and, in the dirt or whatever, dr- drawing hexes in the dirt. Pulling an elaborate, well, and, scheme, and he had that right? he
1: had that schema in the last um, in the last section about how there are some women who you must own and and dominate, right. and some who you must die for. Basically, it's like this is you know, we already we already talked about the Madonna whore complex stuff. We already right. you know have talked about the way women are being drawn here, but like. Uh, and then and now we have a third, right, which is just a different type of whore uh, with Jalenta appearing in the text, mm-hmm. uh, one made by by uh, the glamours of Doctor Talos, but like uh, still th- fits the fits the schema. Perhaps not the murderous. Maybe what we have is a, is a three part one, right? It's like the beautiful Jalenta, the innocent Dorcas, and the manipulative and dangerous agia but like that is what is being mm-hmm. put forward uh as the representative whereas whereas if we list all the types of dudes that we've encountered so far uh, importantly we would talk about a thousand different weird little you know armagers that we've crossed or or the the how many different knights have been talked to- have been talked to at this point the innkeepers right. all of that stuff you know and like there's a handful of women who fulfill those roles but not many you know well, one of them repeats, <laughs> like the waitress is Gelinda, <laughs> right? Is right? Jolenta, so, like, right.
0: even yes, yes, even yes. two characters, we could be like, "Oh, these are kind of different." They're not; they're, they're the,
1: not. literally yeah. the same
0: person. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, I don't uh, mean
1: that by being like, and then if Gene Wolfe had just put a few more evil women in the book, he right. wouldn't be a misogynist. Like, I'm not doing yeah. a, a count here, but no, it's just a numbers game. Yeah, no, the, no, the it's not. The schema would break down if. Right there were more women here because you would yes. you would inevitably and there will be more women we will encounter other women as the text goes on but mm-hmm. the schema as far as i've read forward is is keep that schema in your mind
0: <laughs> yeah well and the other two that you didn't mention but which they don't quite fit the schema but they're doing some other thing and we'll get more context for it is thecla and thea right, right. you know mm-hmm. the yeah. the, yes. the exultant women who are political in some yep. way right you yep. know they are involved in this process Call the conciliator as a book will take us closer to that universe within within this world. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, you know I and I, I, I like that, Dorcas.
1: Let me be yeah, cl- like, I, it's a she's yeah, good. I like yeah. her. She's good. He's doing the thing. He sets out to make her the lovable, innocent one, and it turns out I would give my life for Dorcas. Why not? You know, of all the <laughs> things you could give your life for, why not Dorcas? Right. Uh,
0: yeah. I mean, I think that's part of the thing that's going on is that we, we don't have enough information to make, like, big calls about these books, I don't think yet. Right. Um, although I am poisoned by knowledge. Uh, but but I do think we can – I think what you just said is exactly right. There's a schema going on here, and it is a schema that's populated a, uh, by a bunch of different kinds of men and by its very virtue needs to have very few women in order to work. Mm. And and that scheme is going to break down. It, it it actually can't hold throughout the the entirety of the book of the New and I, I think it actually because it begins to present a lot of problems. At the same time, Severian is not he's not really engaging with that schema very much. Right. Like if we, if we were thinking about this Madonna whore, or is that kind of tripartite different valences of women or whatever. Severian is not engaging with it that way. It's just like, Mm -hmm. here's a woman she's in love with me. I'm going to see what happens with her. Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Here's a woman. Uh,
1: She's the hottest person I've ever seen in my life. Again, for a different reason this time. Uh, and it would be good to sleep with her.
0: Yeah. That's, that's his whole vibe. Right. And he will get more complicated later around this. And in, I think in some ways, right, you know, I think Michael and I have both done this a bit, but it's like, I like Severian. I think Severian's a little goblin of a guy. But Mm -hmm. Severian sucks. Mm -hmm. Severian is like not, you should not approach Severian as... Uh, like you would, you know, uh, like a Dragonlance character, right? Like that—that that is going to be very disappointing for you. And I'm saying this without saying anything too explicit. It will be disappointing and it will be difficult, I think, to get some of the more resonant meanings from the whole text, which is, uh, you know, or, or part of which is, what does it mean to be a bad person who does not understand your ethical weight in the
1: world? Mm hmm.
0: And that Mm -hmm. is part of what these books are about and why I find these books interesting. Um, Severian's done a lot of shit that's like really kind of suspect and odd here, but mostly it is within the realm of fantasy stuff, right? Like it's a lot of casual misogyny that he expresses as a character. Well, welcome to fantasy books. (laughs) You know, like uh, that's still running around in the genre today, even though that genre is in 2023, much more progressive than it has ever been before.
1: Right. Well, Um, and often it's not, uh, especially a lot of classic examples the misogyny is there, but the the artifice does not call attention to it like this. No, yeah, the, artist, the, the of artifice of the doesn't thing. introduce a little goblin man who who misses his sex doll uh, and is in a murderous rage about it, literally next to the first love scene between the protagonist and the seeming and his seeming prim- primary love interest. Right, right. that's not yeah. normally what happens.
0: Yeah, the the book is obviously in openly commenting on this. However, weirdly enough, by the shadow of the torture, y- you have no clarity on what that comment is, <laughs> other right. than uh, general bad vibes.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and it also, uh, in the just before the conversation about the different types of meaning, this is also when we get Severian uh, presenting Thecla as kind of this uplifted or sort of like uh, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. idealized love interest in which all other relationships must be modeled, right? Uh, he says that um, – Oh, t- 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 the
1: beginning uh, the I know play. that at the
2: beginning of that walk, I looked on Dorcas as no more than a chance met companion, however desirable, however to be pitied. And at the end of it, I loved Dorcas in a way that I have never loved another human being. I did not love her because I had come to love Thecla less. Rather, by loving Dorcas, I loved Thecla more because Dorcas was another self as Thecla was yet to become in a fashion as terrible as the other was beautiful. Huh. Uh- Jumping out here, question mark. What? Yeah. Uh huh. Um, that's that's in parentheses, right? I'm
0: parenthetical there.
2: Yeah. Uh, and if I loved Thecla, Dorcas loved her also, and so like, you know, there's there's something going on here with uh, uh, you know, what I said last time is that you can read in some ways Severian as uh presenting a kind of romanticized love story as a tool of political convenience. Yeah. Um, and here it is, uh, uh, redeployed again as a kind of way of, uh, you know, uh, puffing up the things that he has done, like this, mm-hmm. this scene that he had with Dorcas, uh, whatever feelings we may have had at the end, he can put it into conversation as part of this lineage of the transformative encounter with Thecla, uh, and, you know, to, as you say, Cameron, we don't really know where this is going. And that, like, yeah. that parenthetical is like, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, to see the the rhetorical moves happening here is, I think, partly the point.
0: Well, and the thing there that that I really like that we get at the end of the book here, it's not in this chapter, but it's a couple forward, is where he clarifies what the genre of this book is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. It's, a history, right? yeah, it's so, a history, right? So this weird triumvirate of, like, purely innocent Dorcas... Severian, Severian's dead prisoner girlfriend, right? Like mm-hmm. some some ambiguous combo. That thing is not just like oh whatever. It is a matter of historical necessity and record. Mm-hmm. It's important that we know this as people who are reading, you know, the Severian's history of himself as a person. His right. he hasn't called it an autobiography, but that is what's being written, right? Um and and I
1: that parenthetical big question mark there, right? What's yeah. going on with that? He explicitly says later that he's not writing the history to entertain or instruct, right? Nope. He is—he's trying his best to render the thing that happened, which obviously we have already said a lot about in terms it's got of perfect problems. memory. Yeah, uh huh. Yeah, I have to say one thing about the UFO before we move on, please. Because if I don't, someone is scree- Someone's already screamed it at the top of their lungs on their little walk while they listen to us. It's not a UFO, by the way. It's identified. It's a city. It's a city. I know it's not. A, well, it's an. You're right. It is identified. It's identified flying object. It's a yeah, city. An IFO. You're right. Uh huh. Um, it's a tax document. I think. Hey, hey. Did he call it here with the claw? Uh, hard to know. Hard to know. Yeah. But I want to put hard it in the know. air. That's all. Yeah. Hard to know. Um. He he's waving that thing around. Waving it around. Taking it out of the old saber tash. Take opening up the fanny pack. Pulling out the ancient gem of of God, the Lord Himself. Yep, I don't know uh, if the, is, concili- the conciliator is not the pan creator, right? Is the conciliator no. the increate? Do we know this? We don't know. We mm-hmm. know that the conciliator had some
0: powers, and mm. it's unclear if the is it that the we we don't we don't really know. We know that the gem has the same powers as the uh, conciliator, but right. we don't really know much about them together. The problem
1: with Christianity. Uh-oh. All Jesus, right. I mean, let me lay into it here real. Buckle clear. up. Buckle listeners. up, folks. The problem with Christianity, not enough magic gems. Jesus wasn't <laughs> walking around putting his all his energy into a little blue gem that you could bring around in your backpack. <laughs> what do you leave the no, but shroud he did, like wipe his face one time? <laughs> yeah, 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 that's yeah. What I'm get sad, that right? shit out of here. I want a gem. I want a little gem. I want a put into a ring or a pendant and a necklace or the hilt of a sword. I want a blue gem that glows brighter than any star. And I want it to be Jesus's gem. <laughs> How about
2: that, Pope? <laughs> and he gathered them together and said unto them, behold my cool rock. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, I do like the
0: idea of like, uh, you know, whatever, that, that uh, video game nerd gave the Pope Undertale yeah <laughs> we would give the pope uh, <laughs> the claw, a signed and written letter down. about uh, the gem jesus's gem and what <laughs> how he should uh you know uh, uh sanctify it oh
1: that'd be very funny. Be i very
0: mean you're very right funny. you're right when you're right you're right we do need more magic gems yeah that christianity would be better it would be more appealing to me as a system mm-hmm. if it had a <laughs> bunch of magic gems
1: maybe 12 you <laughs> well, know what i mean yeah. there were different colors one for yeah. each yeah. apostle yeah, there you go. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Judas's gem. It's lost to us. But it, it, is it? there's debate. There's a schism, actually, about whether or not Judas's gem is uh, I want the season of Friends at the Table so, so bad. bad. Well, Realis is coming soon. It's going to be like this. So,
0: But no, but I want it to you be literally glitty, want the Judas's actual gem. apostles. Yeah, I want yeah, you to yeah. start doing like New Age fan <sighs> fiction of the apostles. Get everyone to play a different apostle.
1: Oh, that'd be good. It
0: would be good. It would be good.
2: I'm just saying, just
0: saying. I think about it. Uh, Michael what do you want to tell us about this play
2: I mean there's not much to say Other than it happens
0: mm-hmm.
2: And Severian is like I will tell you about this later I could tell you about it now But I'll tell you about it later
0: Well I'm curious about uh, Because it, it's got some like form to it What we have right now has some form to it And by the way this play does come up later on It comes up in Claw the Conciliator We have begun the process Not we have I have uh, asked Grant from Chip and Ironicus Ironicus from the Chip and Ironicus brand name, <laughs> Grant is working on putting on a full audio production of Dr. Talos' play, which we will get a full transcript of later on in the next book. That that will come out. Pro- I don't know where it's going to be. It might be a Patreon exclusive for a little while. I don't want to hold it forever because I think it you know it's, it's a public fun good. for everybody. Yeah. It's a public good. It will be fun, but I do. It might be a Patreon exclusive for like a month or something, mm-hmm. and then we'll put it in the in the in the free feed but to incentivize some patreon stuff patreon.com slash range touch by the way if you want to support the show Uh, but we have worked on that and so we don't want to get too deep into it obviously because Severian himself doesn't but I am curious here Michael because you are someone who uh, knows uh, ancient mysteries of plays and whatnot Mm -hmm. what uh, this is clearly Gene Wolfe playing with like the form of performance and play yes so what are your big thoughts here about it? Because like Dr. Talos like interrupts the play in the middle, like beg for money and all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff, right? I don't know. Is this is this like a the real kind of thing?
1: DLC, he said. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
0: Basically. <laughs> dig deep, bro. I hope you've got $5.99 to find out what happens within the Mass Effect.
2: Right. Uh, I mean, so what is kind of impressive about this is that there has uh, definitely been some research done by Wolf on the matter of particularly medieval plays and how they mm-hmm. worked. Um, the part where Talos like pauses the play in the middle and like begs for money, one hundred percent a thing that happened. Uh, particularly if in things like uh, medieval mystery plays, uh, or not, uh, not not mystery plays, but uh, morality plays is what I want to say. The most famous example of this is uh, Mankind, uh, very allegorical. Like the main, like it's called Mankind. The main character is a guy named Mankind, right? Uh, the wrestler?
3: And
2: he, yeah, yeah, oh. exactly. Right, holy
3: <laughs> <Mick laughs> Yeah,
2: holy He's Santa Claus. He
1: kind of is. Mick Foley, <laughs> if I could pick a man to undergo a sort of m- biblical morality play,
3: mm-hmm.
1: it might be Mick Foley. <laughs> uh, did you watch the Santa Claus
0: documentary? No. What? Because well, you, you know what? that's his thing, is he loves Christmas, and his like his life joy is dressing up as Santa Claus at Christmas time. And he does it for like four months or something. Mick
1: Mick Foley? Yes. How did he never bring that into the ring? He had
3: like, I think this is, post-ring. this is
1: post ring. This is post ring stuff. He found Santa the way you find yes. Christ?
0: Yes. <laughs> it's called, hold on, let me, let me. Uh, he actually, he, he's got a, a, a an illustrated book called Mick Foley's Christmas Chaos.
1: <sighs> Illustrations by Jerry the King Lawler. No holds barred. Wow. I'm just saying uh, that generally. Continue, Michael. Sorry. Tell me yeah. more about. Hold on, wait, no, I need to tell you the name of the documentary Is it I Am Santa Claus? Yes,
0: I Am Santa Claus is the name And it's interviewing other people Who are like professional Santas And then he gets into his own Love of Christmas He has a room in his house
2: Dedicated to Christmas This is wild the, the, I hear in the House Absolute The Ozark <laughs> has a room <laughs> Father and Has <Aniris. laughs> created santa's village all year round oh my god <laughs> how am i the only person of the three of us who've seen this i don't well, know I, I'm, I'm not a wrestler guy or a santa guy so yeah but you like weirdos
1: and this is like the <laughs> definition of weirdos people who love santa the the i need people to understand the cover art for this which says i am santa claus whose lap is your child sitting on uh, underneath uh, it, as a scare quote or 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 a tagline, um, uh, is a picture of a Santa looking into the mirror and seeing himself all dressed up in the the red and the white, the uh-huh. colors of the guild. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, but but the actual his actual body is just him in like a tank top and boxers, and it yeah. looks like Beyond the Mat or Dark Side of the Ring, like it has that style of wrestling <laughs> doc, you yep. know, yep. the reality of the, the inside outside ring divide, you know.
0: But it's not like that. It's joyous. It's only upside. It's all good. Okay. Look here's that. Here's this. Let me show you a little screenshot of Mick Foley in his
1: Santa room. I'm excited in his Santa okay. room. Yeah. Look at that. Oh. Look at this vest. It's yeah. good. He loves. See, this is what I'm saying. You should watch it. It's good. I would like <laughs> him to perform a sort of miraculous service to to all all mankind. You know, yeah. to yeah. like. <laughs> take one for the team and and lead us through the dark time
0: somehow.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: So, uh,
0: Michael, is this medieval play you're talking about, is anything like this? Uh, A little bit. Did we basically (laughs) summarize it?
2: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, essentially, right? Uh, so, I mean, the point of morality plays is that they are deep, like they are very simple and allegorical, right? So, mankind, uh, main character is a dude named Mankind. He is a farmer. Uh, he is uh, accosted by various uh, personifications of sins, you know, like indolence and so on and so forth. And they are like, hey, instead of like, you know, doing God's work and tilling the earth, why don't you not do that? Uh, and so he's, you know, uh, uh, constantly, and this is intended to be uh, a teaching tool for the audience, right? Like this is a uh, big story that is actually about your life, that you have labors that you are to do, that you have a God that you need to serve and you will be tempted uh, to divert from that path uh, by various things in various guises. Now, the thing that is ultimately very interesting about this fairly patent didactic uh, way of conceiving of theater is that there is a bit in the middle of the play where the play stops and they say, by the way, we know what you're here for. You're here for the demon uh, Tetivalis and he's not going to come out until you pay us money. Uh, this was probably performed, you know, like, occasionally, seasonally. Uh, it, it is not uh, uh, the commercial theater does not exist, right? In the same way that uh, I mean, I'm sure a commercial theater exists in, like, Severian's world and Nessus or whatever, but uh, <laughs> Talus and Baldanders are playing it in an itinerant way uh, with a, uh, a a set that they move around and set up in various places uh, as mankind would have been uh, presented. So they pass around the hat, and it's only when uh you get uh enough money that the play will continue and then uh Tetivalis comes out and he starts doing all the cool shit like he starts uh, uh playing tricks on mankind like uh doing pratfalls and stuff uh and it is clear from the text that this was a draw that the thing that is bringing like people are coming to you know learn all their good christian instruction right but like the little treat that you get mm is that you get to watch the demon who is the most uh, dynamic and vivacious character. And there's been all sorts of, uh, you know, uh, 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 scholarship done tracing the figure of the vice. That's what this character type is called the vice, uh, into, uh, like later commercial theater, you know, Shakespeare, and particularly Shakespeare's villains, but also Shakespeare's, uh, more, um, uh, uh, complex psychological characters like Hamlet. One of the hallmarks of the vice is that the vice is the character who will acknowledge that there's an audience, right? The vice will directly address the audience in ways that other characters do not. um, Which actually, you know, uh, uh, fosters kind of a relationship between the audience and the vice character. And there's all sorts of things you can do that in ways that you can uh, uh, maybe extrapolate out that ambiguity and what it means for the project of theater or Christianity and in art or whatever um but uh uh what is fascinating to me here about uh this is in in the 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 play that talus is putting on uh Severian starts out talking about how uh there's all this like stage business all this gymcrackery, right he lists all the things that talus has which is like projectors and uh uh like shadows on screens recorded noises reflecting backdrops and every other conceivable slight uh and so on and so forth so this is a real show uh talus is bringing in people with kind of uh you know fireworks and so on and so forth and at the same time uh it is extremely chaotic it's obviously improvisational to some degree which is again true of the early theater especially if you're playing these things in rep uh based on your audience uh you would drop out certain things like the audience really isn't into whatever scene tonight let's swap it in for another one or like Mm. let's just skip this right and so uh, Talus and uh, Baldanders and Jolenta are putting on this play, and literally Severian and Dorcas walk in by happenstance, and Talus picks them out, and he's like, "Ah, there's death and innocence. Here they come!" <laughs> like uh, just on the fly, revises the play that they are doing to incorporate uh, these these uh, new arrivals and making them <laughs> uh, actors in the play. And Talus is um, improvising like little gags, little jokes as it
1: happens. He goes. Death, death has come. I doubted you these past two days, old friend. I ought to have known better. And and you know he's like hitting the 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 bits, you know. But right. Like
2: death, the death always comes. Death <laughs> always shows up. There he is. Right. So like to draw out some of the comparisons I've been making here, Talus is doing vice stuff, right? right? He is he is like he's that playful, like chaotic energy. He's addressing the audience. He's the one who stops the play and starts asking for money, which is what tativolus does. Um uh and then Severian talks about how uh despite all of this cool gym crackery, right, triumphing in (laughs) all of the showmanship. He failed, uh, for his desire was to communicate, to tell a great tale that had uh, being only in his mind and could not be reduced to common words. But no one who ever witnessed a performance, and still less we who moved across his stage and spoke at his bidding, ever left it, I think, with any clear understanding of what the tale was. (laughs) (laughs) If. It could only, Dr. Talus said, be expressed in the ringing of bells and the thunder of explosions and sometimes by the postures of ritual. Yet, as it proved in the end, it could not be expressed even by these. So, Severian's take is that ultimately, right, this is, like, incoherent and Dr. Talus is, like, uh, uh, so caught up in his own deal that he is try- like he he is so driven to express something uh and it is something that must be expressed so grandly and so complexly uh that it comes out being unreadable or or incomprehensible uh mm-hmm. despite his own best efforts and may we say right there's a bit of self commentary here uh on the practice of writing from wolf right and what mm-hmm. he is doing he is a, he is also attempting something that is big and grand and has these postures of ritual that's why we spent however long talking about like catholic church history right <laughs> Um, and at the same time, uh, one of the things that we have said about these books and things that people who are reading these books along with us in the discords that I've been watching are saying is just like, man, there's stuff in here that you just don't understand. It's just weird. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
0: it's full of that. I, there's all kinds of shit that happens in these books that I have no explanation for and I'm not interested in explaining. (laughs) I just I don't, I don't know whatsoever, uh. I, I just want to uh, say, you know, yeah. I know
1: that there is a – just to talk about the the morality play that, that you were describing before, uh, Mankind and the history mm-hmm. of theater and then this. I know that it is a trick of, of the modern moment to, to tell you that the world has always been moving in the direction that it is moving and that this is the only – uh, the only formation that we've ever had and ever will have. I know that capitalism tries to trick you to think that it's a natural and true thing. And I'm not calling what is happening here capitalism. Capitalism is a different thing than commerce. Uh, however, when I hear about Tintovilus, the little freak that everyone wants to see and that people put him behind a paywall, <laughs> same uh-huh. as it ever was, man. People <laughs> love to see a little freak. They love to get talked at from a stage. Yeah. It's yeah. It's, you know, people's people. Mm-hmm. He was he was the Babu Frick of his day. He was the Babu Frick of his <laughs> day, exactly. The rest of that play could have sucked, but hey, little guy. And Doctor Talos is kind of the same, you know. Yeah. Well, I like that Doctor
0: Talos is uh, he is really depending on the fan wiki to make this thing go. You <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? Like he's he's season one a losty now here. He's just throwing every idea out, and then whatever shakes out shakes out. Uh, and also. It would be great. It would be great. I would, you know, I, uh, notoriously, I've talked on many things. I don't like live performance. Makes me feel weird and uncomfortable. I don't care for it. But I will be honest. If I were attacked by, like, a giant devil two-thirds of the way through (laughs) any given performance, I might be more into it. Uh, You know, if just, like, a dude broke free and started menacing me (laughs) with giant torches and shit and I had to flee, that might be cool. I might be more into that. But What uh, if
1: you dropped what you were holding? Let me after let me I, I want mean to read shoot? yeah I please. want to read
0: Dr. Talos when he says because that's what happens like ball dangers <laughs> the, the thing falls apart after they call for money ball danger scares everyone away and then they uh, and then Dr. Talos says this uh, well let me I'll read the whole paragraph so this is Severian narrating I did not understand what he meant but in a few moments the torches were back in place and we were hunting through the trampled area in front of the stage with dark lanterns so they're like looking through all the stuff. It's a gambling proposition, Dr. Talos explained, and I confess to loving them. The money in the hat is a sure thing. By the close of the first act, I can predict to an oracle how much it will be. But the dropsies, they be no more than two <laughs> apples and a turnip, or as much as an imagination can encompass. We found a baby pig. Delicious, so Baldanders told me when he ate it, we found a baby baby. We have found a gold-headed and I re- stick, and I retain it. Antique brooches, shoes. We frequently find shoes of all kinds. Just now, I found a women's parasol. Uh, he held it up. This will be just the thing to keep the sun from our fair Jolenta when we go strolling tomorrow. Incredible. <laughs> Dr. Tallis was fucking dope. Are you kidding me? Are we found a baby, me? Baby. We've yeah. had a baby baby. We found a baby baby. We found a baby pig and a baby baby. I wonder what happened to that baby baby. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to think about what happened to the baby baby. If, if Bald Niners ate the baby pig, you don't want to think about the baby baby. It's it's good. I and he, I love that he reveals here too that that stick that he carries around, yeah, and, and like is knocking shit apart with yeah. all the time. They just found it one day. It's like, and
1: I retain it. He
2: says, yeah.
3: lifting
1: it into the air. Yeah.
3: yeah,
2: you know, isn't that just uh uh one of the weirdest things where Severian goes to sleep, but he doesn't really. I mean, he sleeps off and on, but he sees uh Talos sitting by the fire, and then. Alone, and then in the middle of the night or like close to dawn, Talos just like walks around and he starts just like whipping his cane over all the wildflowers and beheading them.
0: He just knocks
2: the head off every wildflower
0: he
1: can see. Hey, why doesn't he sleep? Do you, what do you well, think? he does lay down. Yeah, he, he does. does he down. does lay down. For does. All, but then
0: he wakes up real quick when someone mentions his name.
1: I don't yeah. know. I don't. You were just talking about how you don't know. You know what I mean? Sometimes you read a book right. and you're like, I don't know.
0: Yeah, he's a weird dude. Right. Certainly when I read it the first time, we will get clarity on all these things if you actually desire answers to your listener. There will be some answers to some things. Yeah. Um, but really, truly, the first time I read this, I was like, this dude's fucking weird. <laughs> like, yeah. what, what's his deal? <laughs> could be an elf. Could be a gnome. That's mm-hmm. kind of what I think. I, like, in terms of a where I was spirit. without giving that, I was like, oh, he might be some sort of, like, magical being. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, or.'" Think about the way he engages with things. I kind of thought maybe he was a drug addict. Sure, yeah, because he's doing all kinds of biological shit too, right? Like he takes Jolenta from being just a regular woman to being the you know the most attractive big quotation marks the most attractive (laughs) woman on the planet, right? And she Uh, has
1: like big quotation marks above her waist the above her the waist her creamy amplitude was such that her (laughs) spine must have been curved backwards to balance the
2: weight. Right. yeah he turns so, her into so, that Spider Woman drawing that everyone. Does? Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, yes. I mean, basically, she she gets uh, like huge breast implants, BBLs, yep, um, and like her thighs are very big. I mean, he just makes her very voluptuous. Is like the thing here, and it's as, as Severian notes, it's like she has turned into the image of the most attractive woman, right? And she seems pained by it. Like he says that she has problems walking and that she uh, can't, uh, that she's like out of breath all the time. Um, you know, she she's actually, is a physical transformation that has happened to her that actually seems very difficult um, despite making her very, very attractive. What do we do with that? I don't know. But that is something that has occurred and it's occurred in what, like a week or something? Five days? If even. It's like it's like four or five days. Uh hold on. I don't know. All said, I don't know. You, well, we we can walk it back. So like the the morning that they meet her, yeah. He he meets the twins. That's day one. Yeah. They go
1: to the gardens. It's
0: still they the go same the gar- day. oh yeah, maybe it's maybe it's not even that much. They is it gardens, because they go to the gardens that, come that back. night?
1: Yeah, they fight that evening. And then mm-hmm. the next day he wakes up and does the execution. How many days between the d- no no? It's two days because remember he days.
0: he he goes to uh, he wakes up in the barracks the next day after he he dies essentially. You know he's killed right. by the and the, then that the thing and, is and like, then the next day is the and-
1: execution right. after that. Yeah, exe- yeah. He he takes a day between yeah. the duel and the execution. Right. Takes a day so off. Takes takes a personal day. Right. So that's three days. Yeah.
0: Oh, and 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 then. Uh, That evening, yes, yeah. Is uh, that- no, they no? they stay in the barracks with the chiliark.
1: <laughs> right the the chiliark, chill is <laughs> uh, in with, cold, or uh, kill is in like, he kills you. Who
0: could say the, how the uh, sign resolves? Mm-hmm. I think he's like a little penguin guy. I was going to oh. say I'm going
2: for chiliark because that allows me to imagine a race of like ruling penguins. That's yeah, cool. I'm thinking of like chili emperor
1: Willy. penguins <laughs> with the big like eyebrows.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, you know?
1: I think it's the fourth day because
0: they stay that they stay until the evening. No. Yeah, they stay into the evening that night. See, a, then they see the spaceship. Then, yeah, then, then they, they see, see Baldanders. So this is the fourth day. Yeah, this okay. is the the morning that he wakes up and talks to Jolenta and all that stuff. That's the, and they make their way to the road. That is the fourth day right. after uh, they meet Angelus.
1: Point being, so there, there are a few days there where Doctor Talos is working some magic, literal yeah. or figurative. Well, oh, they've the been figure. performing
0: for two days. He oh, says. they've been
1: performing? I, oh, so he did the he did the Jolenta glamour in a day. Same day. Same,
2: Same day operation. Glamour. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Same day glamour. Yeah. That's, that's on his kind of cards. What I thought. The reason
0: I say all that is like when I read this book the first time I was like, oh, he's like manipulating people's like whole bodies. Mm-hmm. So him not sleeping is not all that weird to me. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. Him right. being like a like going and surgically knocking the head off every flower,
2: that's
1: weird. That's just a thing you do. You didn't do that as a kid.
2: Well, I mean, that's the thing, right? Is that it's a very childlike kind of, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. like, I don't know, like rage is not even the right word, but there's a kind of way that children can be destructive and mean uh-huh. in, in like a systematic way that is, you know, unsettling.
1: I, I, it feels indifferent to the nat- to nature. It feels like yes. oh, they're just a bunch of wildflowers. I'm above all that, right? Right. Who cares about these wildflowers? I'm gonna the most joy that they can give the world is to me in this moment where I devastate them. Mm-hmm. I think Severian also believes about women.
0: <laughs> you think Baldanders is uh, is Doctor Talos's slave?
1: I didn't get that. Where are you getting that from? Is that Severian Dark, says uh, that?
0: Severian says that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll read you. Hold on. Let me let me find it.
1: I think I did believe it the first time through this time their relationship was just so weird that I'm, I'm not, I don't think it's as simple as, as that. I don't know. Okay. So this is what he says. It's on 202 of my
0: uh, orb books edition. I had observed, of course, that when the doctor spoke earlier of dividing the contributions he'd collected the night before he had specified division into four parts, but I assumed it was Baldanders, danders who seemed to be uh, his slave who right. would receive nothing now however after rummaging in the box Dr. Talos dropped a shining Asami into the giant's hands gave another to me a third to Dorcas and a fistful of Oric to Jolenta and he began to distribute Oric singly you will notice that everything thus far is a good money I regret to report that there is a fair number of dubious (laughs) coins here as well when the (laughs) undoubted specie is exhausted you will each come in for a share of them I also love that uh, so he spreads all that money around and he basically says listen you can have the money but uh, you're you're giving up uh, ground findings. Yeah. If we get more ground stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they got a gold stick that one time. But yeah, so
1: Severian so clearly believes Baldanders is is the slave here. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, like, and again, like that's the whole bit in some ways, right? It's like, oh, it's the big guy and the doctor, and you assume the doctor. But but he's also referred to Baldanders as his patient, right? So it's right, like, right. severian keep up, bud. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's his patient. the The patient wouldn't also be the slave, right? i
3: I, I don't guess no. I
0: yeah, I don't know, well, yeah. but that's why I'm bringing attention to it, right? Because, like, why Severian's giving us a lot of like thoughts about this relationship that in dialogue is clarified, right? But here's a different perspective, anyway, just a thing that is interesting to me yeah. about
1: yeah
2: Baldwin right. well, a- and and even following that, there is a conversation. That's very interesting where Jolenta is like, hey, w- w- why aren't you taking anything like this? This seems weird. Uh, and Talos says or actually, no, it's uh, a who who says it isn't fair, doctor. He also agrees like you should be taking some of this money. And Talos says, I take nothing. Uh, I wrote the play, you know, it is my pleasure to direct what I may now call the company. I wrote the play we perform and like, he looked around it as if for a simile, that armor pointing, you know, probably to a stage prop or whatever there. I take my part. These things are my pleasure and all the reward I require. So, you know that it, along with like whipping the heads off flowers there's something weird and ineffable and like anomalous about this cuz he he was the guy who checked the dead man's pockets for money right money, and here right. he is being like oh no 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 directing this play is my own special reward and i require no compensation from it so it's like mm-hmm. what
1: also, oh, the armor he points at is like a dress form with a silver spray painted shirt or something on it. Because yeah. Jalenta points at it, calls it armor earlier, and we get Severian describing it, and he's just like, "Oh, oh yeah, the armor, right?" And yeah. it's good that in Doctor Talis's mind, mo- that's armor, baby. It's all the way here. I'm in the. I'm in the the, the mode of of playmaking. I, the fantasy is real. 100%. Right?
0: Like that that's Dr. Talus's whole thing, right? Like yeah. the pre- presentations everything.
1: Yeah. Uh presentation
0: is the thing. Also they're like
1: you did not you were having a dream kid. Because he wakes up and he's like I I I I had a weird dream and my dog was there and and Dr. Talos is like there was no dog and Severian is like maybe you fell asleep for a little bit and then a ghost and a dog showed up. And they're like no <laughs> uh-uh no. <laughs> The uh but his chest was still warm. His chest was yep. still warm. Where uh where uh Triskel came and sat with him. Mm-hmm. The uh then Hethor shows up. I love this last chapter so much. This is again that energy that I talked about earlier of like Things are going around, all are going on all around you, um, and it's kind of chaotic. And it, it opens with Heather, Hathor showing back up, and then the the kind of crush of people at the castle, at the, the the gate of the walls, and then what's going on inside of the walls, and then there's noises, and then it's just it's it's cacophonous in this last chapter. It just grows and grows and grows until it's too much to bear, and then it ends. And I I love the energy of this final chapter so much. What's Heather say? Oh, he's just like, hey, hey, dude, will you be my master? <laughs> and he does that for a page and a half again. Right. Yeah,
0: he just goes goes off again uh, and really starts talking about like dead moons, the dead moons of Verthandi. He yeah. starts talking about that <laughs> shit.
1: He's seen some shit. He, this is sort of a I, you know, I've seen sites you people wouldn't believe. You know, yeah. oh yeah, hundred percent.
0: People right. should quote this instead of that. Yeah. They should go. <laughs> they
1: should read the whole three hundred fifty words
0: about yeah. uh-huh.
1: Hethor's space
0: fantasies. Uh, do you
1: think that when, um, what's his face? Uh, uh, uh why am I blanking on his name? Um uh, Roy Batty you more
3: than it. Uh-huh. Um,
1: yeah, Roy Batty. Roy Batty. When Roy Batty sat down in the writers' room or sat down in the in the the read uh, and was like, "Oh, I could do a little improv here. I'm gonna do gunboats off the shoulder of, of Orion." He was referencing this as a big fan of of uh, Gene Wolfe. No, I don't think that.
0: <laughs> but that's a great story. I don't know, man. Long I signed on yes. the silver sailed ships and the hundred masted whose masts reached out to the stars, I floating among their shining jibs with the Pleiades burning beyond the top royal spar, but never have I seen aught
2: like you. I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> you see, the thing that we're not—if uh, you're not reading along—is <laughs> yeah, uh, he he uh, heathor stutters. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, So this is like littered throughout, right? So this is how he yeah. introduces himself. You know, like Heathor, am I come to serve you? To scrape the mud from your cloak, <laughs> wet the great sword, c- c- carry the basket with the eyes of your victims looking up at me, master, eyes like the dead moons of Varthandi where the sun has gone out, where the sun has g- g- gone out. Like wow. What a, a guy. Real,
1: it's a real Dark Souls NPC. Oh, <laughs> yes. yeah, 100%.
0: You could just take this and put
1: that in there, and yeah. people would
0: be like, uh, When you meet Hithor in the bottom of the first barrel storage <laughs> facility, he speaks of Verthandi. In Sekiro, Verthandi was referred to as <laughs> Blee, blee, blue blah, blee, blah. Uh huh.
1: <laughs> yep. Rutger Hauer. Rutger, yeah, Rutger, Rutger Hauer.
0: Hauer. Roy Batty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, he just hangs out. And yep. kind of just becomes part of the crew. And Severian's like, that's fine with me. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Uh, which is wild. And he wants to yeah. carry Terminus Est so bad.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Please let me carry your sword. Come on. Let me carry your sword. I don't trust it, you know? Yeah. Because you know, who Come else on, to carry the sword? Agilus.
0: Yeah, he had to kill a guy all about that.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't take my sword. My sword's important to me. It's sick. It, it, there's a rivulet in it, and there's a liquid that, <laughs> that moves as I move the blade down to make, it, to make it cut people's heads off in a smoother motion. This is 205. Our small theater
0: packed itself quite neatly into a huge barrow formed from parts of the stage, and baldanders who wield this contraption also carried a few odds and ends on his back. Dr. Talos with Dorcas, Jolenta, and me beside him led the way, and Hethor followed Baldanders at a distance of perhaps a hundred paces. He's like me, Dorcas said, glancing back, and the doctor is like Agia, only not as bad. Do you remember? She couldn't make me go away, and eventually you made her stop trying.
3: Huh.
0: Hethor is like me.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and he's following Baldanders. He's not following his master. Right, Severian.
1: That's like kind of Severian's ploy, right? Severian's trick here is he's like, uh, yeah, we're going, we gotta, we're going this way to with the, with the play. And his plan at this point is he's gonna dip, right? He's gonna follow him this far and he's like, I'm gonna go drop the claw off with the Pelerines because I'm not supposed to have this. And it's when he gets here, a guy hears them. The guy with the, Mm -hmm. with the contraption hand is like, oh, you want the Pelerines? We gotta keep going this way, bud. They, yeah, they yeah. left. They all left last night. They went past the inn I was staying at. There's a whole thing. People ran out into the roads. Uh, by the way, that's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my life.
0: Yeah. No <laughs> one's ever been worse at ditching someone than Severian.
1: It's so, he's so bad at it.
0: He's really bad at it. But, yeah, that guy, uh, it's actually really interesting to me. This is Jonas. And we are given his name, like, in in a Jonas
2: said style <laughs> scenario, right? It's like he do, he never introduces himself. Yeah. It's just like and Jonas said, blah, blah, well, it, blah. It, it's like uh, uh, the man whose name was Jonas, we learned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jonas shook his head. We get, I think we get it a couple times
0: there. Just like, oh, he's just in here now. But uh, yeah, he's walking around, tells him the pair, pelerines are this way. So Severian says, let's go this way, I guess. What do you think about the wall? Kick ass. It's so it's, good. It is Truly kick-ass.
1: It, it is a black metal like the walls of the Citadel, and for this reason, it seemed less terrible to me than it would have otherwise. The buildings I had seen in the city were of stone or brick, and to come now on the material I had known from earliest childhood was no unpleasant thing. Yet, to enter the gate was to enter a mine. Incredible. He describes it like you. it pierces the clouds above it so tall. You know, yeah. the clouds move across its face as ripples do across a pond. It's a big – it's the fucking gate of Mordor, you know? Like – Oh, yeah. Impossibly.
0: Mm-hmm. It's, bigger, it's bigger than that. It's right? bigger it's than like that. If, if it's that tall that the clouds squish up on it and birds can't fly over it, it's like 700 feet tall. You it's know what incredible. I mean? Like it's yeah. just cyclopean, right? This is massive thing. And uh, to enter it is like a mine, so it's so thick that it, it's like you're going down to the ground as opposed to through it, right? Like a gate would be. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, it's like going in the Lincoln Tunnel
2: from the stand.
0: Except right. that, they,
1: go ahead.
2: Oh, they have to travel a while before they can see the light at the other end. Right. Yeah. And what's going on inside? <laughs> There's just fucking dudes who live in there. <laughs> and not just dudes.
1: Creatures. Creatures. The Pandors of the Altar are in there.
2: Yeah. Behind these windows, there are windows, right? Yes! There are win- and and uh, uh, made of some material thicker yet clearer than glass. Behind these windows, we could see the moving figures of men and women and of creatures that were neither men nor women. Cacogens, I think, were there, beings to whom the Avern was but a marigold or a marguerite is to us. <laughs> Others seem beasts with too much of men about them, so that horned heads watched us with eyes too wise and and mouths that appeared to speak showed teeth like nails or hooks. Uh and yeah, the panders of the Autarch is that what Talos names them when a yeah. uh, Severian asks. Uh, and basically uh uh, Talos says uh, they're, they're like mice although it is of, mit- of immense thickness uh, it is honeycombed everywhere so I am given to understand in its passages and galleries there dwell an innumerable soldiery ready to defend it just as termites defend their ox-high earthen nests on the pampas of the north there is in the fourth or er, there is uh, this is the fourth time Bald- uh, uh, first time Baldanders and he have gone through it etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh-huh. but yeah. the idea is like there's like a stand like there is a massive wall around the city and within that Wall is a standing reserve army of people, aliens, and a secret third thing that is neither people, alien, nor animal.
1: It's like a minotaur. It's like a cyclops. or something yeah. that's like they got horns in there. I, I you know, there, it's 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 wild. This is a cool. Again, you hit this at the end of the book, right? You're holding a physical copy of the book. I mean, today you're holding a copy that probably has the call of the conciliator attached to it right uh but if you were holding just this book there's only but seven pages left or whatever right you know and you're like oh and i'm passing through the gate that's filled with all the aliens and monsters mm-hmm. Behind, what if it's just a uh, uh,
0: like a small world ride
3: like also an ancient possible. small
0: world like a tour of the here are <laughs> all the people
1: within the uh you know the autarchs empire uh, totally possible that'd be fun that's great the idea that like it's it's behind a glass so clear but thick is just a big TV screen, yeah. you know, and like, yeah. oh, you're seeing what the world of wonders is beyond the city or like you're seeing this is why you come into the city to avoid things like this. I, totally I, possible. I,
0: I like. I also like the idea of it. It's you know when you like walk by these uh, like totally glassed in office buildings and that, you can yes, just look totally. through and it's like you're watching someone doing their desk job at a bank or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like oh there's the, there's the the goat headed guy he's drinking his latte. Mm-hmm. You know there he is. Oh he's scratching himself. It's awkward for me to see that. Yeah. You know he thinks he's in private. Um, yeah, I think this is great. This truly reading this the first time I was like, hell yeah, we're going to get into this. We're going to be there Uh, before we continue talking about the wall. What do you think the wall is? Because we get a weird little tidbit of information, which is, you know, it's all the way around the city. Uh, but the river guy leaves the city. So it's got to go through the wall. If it's truly a ring all the way around or some sort of, you know, quadrangle, (laughs) depending (laughs) on your shape that you like, the the river's got to go through it somewhere. We get two weird pieces of information here when they're talking about the wall. One is that it w- that at one point when the wall was maybe put here or built or whatever, uh, it wasn't called Nessus yet because the river wasn't poisoned. Mm-hmm. Right. B- big question there. I don't really know what that yeah. means. And the other thing that Baldander says is, uh, uh, because, um, uh, oh, gosh, uh, Dr. Talos says, You know, there's all this nature between the edge of the city and the wall that no one's supposed to build in. We do know that, right? But he he also says it's there for the city to expand. Look at all this room, you know, like (laughs) uh, 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 Citadel Flight. You know, all this shit that could happen, right? And Baldanders is like, that's not what this is for. That's not what this area is for. And then <laughs> Doctor Talos is kind of being a jerk about it. And he goes, "Oh, tell us about it, old guy. He's older than me. He thinks he knows everything. Ugh. He thinks he's been everywhere. Uh, you know." T- and then Baldanders doesn't really tell us what what that's about, but it implies that this big gap between the city and the wall, there's some other purpose for it. That it's not just expansion room or or whatever. There's some other thing. So what is the wall? What do y'all think it is? I don't know. Mm. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. Yeah. We're, like, we're given
2: all this, like, stuff to speculate about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I think it's just a wall. I think the space is there because uh, the wall is built for combat, perhaps, right? Mm. If you if you put that, it, it is odd, right, that there is this guard wall that is such a great distance from the city proper. Right. Right? It's, uh, like, hours from the city, yeah. Right, so... If this thing was put into place with this idea that it's going to be the last defense against some sort of uh, in you know incursion from a, a another army, maybe you want to do that as far away from the city as you can while still protecting the city. Yeah, but it's made of spaceship
1: metal. Well, that's the thing, right? Could the whole city be a spaceship? Right?
0: I, I, could they have that, mm-hmm. seen this floated sometimes? Right?
1: Yeah. yeah. Could they have? Could the vision of the city in the sky have actually simply bit been the city they were in? <laughs> Somehow, do you know what I mean? I mean, he does immediately after that talk, talk
0: about how ghosts inhabit the places that they were in. Yeah. And yeah. then they slowly diminish over time. So may, I don't know why a spaceship can't have a ghost. Why can't a spaceship or have a ghost? I don't know. It, uh, yeah, so maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, this is truly a mystery, and I'm sure that like someone's puzzled this out, but uh, I don't know. It is notable that he's like, oh, yeah, it's familiar because I grew up in a rocket ship, and this mm-hmm. is made of rocket ship. Yeah. But I don't really know what that means. And it's also, you know, it's so big that it could be like a Star Cruiser, you know, that kind of scale and size. Exactly. Which is You could be size. walking in the side of like a Star Wars.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Totally. Uh, can I it's call neat. out a thing in this chapter that I think is the funniest thing in the world? You should. Yeah. It's two different, I'm going to read two different small excerpts, one of which you already heard part of. I asked Dr. Talos what these creatures were. Soldiers, he said, the Pandors of the Altark. Jolenta, whose fear made her press the side of one full breast against the thigh of a man on the merry chip, whispered, whose perspiration is the gold of his subjects. And then later, uh, this, uh, Jonas is telling the story about the, the woman... Uh, uh, you know, getting the beans from space or whatever. She displayed the beans to the lords of the men and told them that unless she were obeyed, she would cast them into the sea and so put an end to the world. They had seized her and torn her to bits, for they were a hundred times more complete in their domination than our Altark. May he endure to see the new sun, Jalenta murmured. This, it's, I think it's set up early in the book that whenever anyone mentions the Altark, a, a cultural thing to do is to like say the little may he live to grace eternity or whatever, right? To, to yeah, do. like a and positive Jalent, thing about him. Right, and mm-hmm. Jalent is such a regular person from the world that she doesn't, right? No mm-hmm. one else... Just thinking about the altarc. They got schemes running. They're falling in love. They're doing executions. They're they're drawing hexes into the dirt. They are waking up from a pit of or a swamp from which they've lost their memory. They're doing yeah. plays. They're or, JRPG
0: characters. Right. Not and She's just some woman.
1: Delenta is out here talking about may he endure to see the new sun. You know. Yeah, it's great. Whose perspiration yeah. is the gold of his subjects?
0: Yeah, she's just a regular, regular person who's like. Gotten caught up in some bad shit. In some bullshit, exactly. Yes, love it. Great. Yeah, good stuff. I and uh, Jonas shows up too. You know, a little additional guy to talk to here yep. at the end. It's got some sort of robot hand, maybe. Well, yeah. unclear. Got a metal a metal implement, I think it's called. Mm-hmm.
2: He's got an uh all-time great uh uh typing quirk <laughs> uh where he's constantly uh using like clichés and truisms uh that are absolutely not clichés and truisms to the reader, but then he like how he makes them clichés or truisms is he adds on like a little story. Uh I'm trying to find the the really good one about the bear. Oh, what was the bear? What was up with the bear? Oh, th- there's something where he says, "Uh, like, people are, like, running and shouting or something. And he'll he says something like, well, I don't know what the problem was, as the bear said of the campers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, it's just oh, it's such good. a great, like, thing that he does a couple times here. He's he's a good guy. And then uh, I found it, also, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, uh, I don't know what was wrong, but believe me, their departure was impressive and unmistakable. That's what the bear said, you know, about the picnickers. Yes. So good. (laughs) Yeah, they don't have picnickers in in (laughs) Nessus, I don't think, right? I don't know. Maybe they do. Maybe people are going out. Well, yes, they do, because people picnic um, for the duels. Some people show up with, like, a basket of food to hang out and watch people die.
0: I guess that's true. Uh, So two things that I really like here, like, language wise, We do eventually get Destriers. That has happened a couple Mm -hmm. times. The dead body can be put on the back of a Destrier if you're an exultant. We do know that. I mean, I'm about
1: Uh, to reveal why it has – we're about to reveal why it has lodged itself in my brain as the worst. Yes, 100%. But the the, the other one
0: I really like here is that his little horse, his little like pony he's driving is a Mary Chip.
3: A little Mary Chip.
0: I like that a lot. I like that Mm -hmm. word. That's a good word.
1: Well, and in my mind – and this is like the the curse by by future knowledge thing – he was on a destrier, but he isn't. It's just that when Jonas shows up, it's in proximity to Gene Wolf telling us about destriers. Yes. But he's on a merry chip.
0: But he's on a merry chip. He's not on a destrier. <laughs> Which is an extinct proto horse. <laughs> 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 or is it? Well, we can talk about it. Let's let's say the last, let's get to the last little thing. Um, we will learn more about all these characters because the books keep going. Yeehaw. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here's the deal: some weird shit happens, and it's so weird that it like made me mad the first time I read the book. Because it's legit, I like, love it. like some combat, there's a ruckus up ahead,
3: yeah, <laughs> like, right.
0: I, and you know, it's hard to know to me how wide the gate is, but it's long. You know, you're in the Lincoln Tunnel. It's a it's a big thing. You know, you're you're in the whatever that the 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 tunnel between the tunnel. You know what yeah. I mean? Like mm-hmm. you're just down in here. And there's like combat or some shit happening up ahead. It's there's so like a car good. Accident.
1: The thing that yeah. happens is that he's in. It's literally the next line from where I was before. May he endure yeah. uh, to see the new sun, which is I'm going to compare this to a film thing in a second. Uh, but but you know, um, uh, Jonas is telling this story, and then this story doesn't fucking end because he because Jonas says May he endure to see the new sun, and then Dorcas tightened her grip on my arm and asked, "Why are they so frightened?" Which p- parenthetical, Austin again, Dorcas notices first. Severian yep. is often his reverie, You're listening to this story, consumed by stories, Dorcas is noticing things, then screamed and buried her face in her hands as the iron tip of a lash flicked her cheek. I pressed past the Mary Chip's head, seized the ankle of the wagoner who'd struck her and pulled him from his seat. By the t- uh, by, that time, all the gate was ringing with bawling and swearing and the cries of the injured and the bellowings of frightened animals. And if the stranger continued his tale, I could not hear it. The driver I pulled down must have died at once because I had, because I had wished to impress Dorcas. I had hoped to perform the excruciation we call two apricots, but he had fallen <laughs> under the feet of the travelers and the, the heavy uh, wheels of the carts. Even his screams were lost. And then he goes, Here I pause, having carried you, reader, from gate to gate, from the locked, uh, fog shrouded gate of our necropolis to the gate uh, with its curling wisp of smoke, da, 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 et cetera. Um, that final three paragraphs of action is so compelling to me. Things going wrong in this terrifying way Severian sneaking in that he wanted to impress a girl by doing a terrible excruciation he doesn't understand humans he doesn't get it uh the the thing that it, the thing that it hits me with is the same energy of the uh the break before the intermission the final shots of the intermission before uh the, sorry before the intermission in Dr Zhivago, um uh which is people on a train uh trying to get away from the front. Uh, and the arrival of, of Strelnikov, uh, the, the revolutionary hero, uh, which is, which is uh, kind of oh, oh, greeted by a child asking his mother as, as their train pulls to the side to let Strelnikov's uh, train pass. Uh, mother, are there wolves in the forest? And we get a hard cut to the military train of Strelnikov, the reveal of who Strelnikov really is. I won't spoil it for you here. All you Zhivago heads out there, don't worry. I'm not going to step on this. <laughs> uh, and, and then a hard intermission break. And I love that rising action to hard break so much. Uh, even though, and maybe because it's it's not cathartic, you don't get the resolution of what's happening. Um, and there's there's questions about what's about to happen. Love it. Great. Perfect. Cameron, tell me why, you, why this upsets you.
0: Because we are like, well, Scott, I wanted to hear the end of Jonas' story. Mm-mm. And what's going on? What's
2: Mm-mm. happening? Well, the story is being interrupted at the moment the story is being yes. interrupted, you see. You see, see the, the
1: executioner's blade go up. You don't get to see it come down sometimes, Cameron. Is this the shadow of the torture? This is the shadow of the torture. <laughs> the shadow's in the way. Oh, I can't see past the shadow. Oh, I my couldn't God. see how the head fell in the basket. The shadow obscured it from me. Jesus.
0: The pain creator, <laughs> the increator. the increator. Uh, I, I, uh, the conciliator. <laughs> yeah, less, more words. Um, the uh, we're going to jump to the appendix now because it truly just ends. Right. Uh, good luck. Great. I hope you can wait. I hope you're happy to wait nine months or something until <laughs> yes. The next book
1: comes out. does end by going here. I pause. If you wish yeah. to walk no farther with me, reader, I cannot blame you. It is no easy road. Uh, and then some sort I cannot of imagine like. Imagine reading this book when it came out. What was right. the okay? What type of music was playing in your headphones when this came out? What year is this? When it came out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This when this is came 80, out,
0: right? Is this it nineteen eighty? Is it
1: Shadow uh, of the Torturer released the yeah, in May on, May nineteen eighty yeah. album releases? Yeah. What are you playing on your hi fi? You know, May, I'm
0: going to look at May nineteen eighty top heavy metal 40.
1: music, no, I'm. Come on, you're reading Shadow of the Torturer. Come
0: on, but I'm also if I'm reading this when it comes out, I'm I'm 12. I'm just listening to whatever people tell me to. You're tw- you're not
1: 12 I'm, in 1980.
0: In my imagination, Fucking Back in Black
1: came out this month. No, listen. <laughs> here's actually what I'm, li-
0: I'm I'm looking at the top 40, and this is probably what I'm listening to. They've got Call Me by Blondie. It's number one. Okay, well, that's okay? also okay. Begs. Okay, right. Funky Town is number two. <laughs> um. Let's see. Ride like the wind by Christopher Cross, <laughs> okay. still an all-time great song. It's number nine. Number ten is Cars by Gary Newman. Okay, number eleven is Bon Another Segers. Brick in the Wall.
1: You've skipped Billy Joel's. You may be right. <laughs> no, no, not according to May
0: twenty-fourth, nineteen eighty. I'm reading the chart from that uh, time. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're two it's weeks after me. Top forty me. Okay. singles. Yes, top forty yes, singles. Yes, yes. Um. Uh. Some Elton John. Billy Joel is mm-hmm. a little bit further down. Train in Vain by The clashes is, is out. It's a good time for Top Forty. Yeah, you're right. Top Forty is doing okay. Yeah, who could be mad? So I'm probably listening to Top Forty in my imaginary 1980, a, a, a substantial amount of time before Funky I was Town is before. playing
1: on the radio. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, <laughs>
1: Nessus, the city of eternal
0: funk. And I'm paying. I'm paying a, a close attention to Jonas's story about a woman who brought seeds for beans. From the stars and said, listen, if you don't give this planet to me, I'm going to throw these beans in the ocean and I'm going to destroy your whole planet. And then the people who she was threatening said, try me. And ripped her to shreds. Uh huh. I hope those beans don't come back. I hope those beans don't come back to haunt anyone's life from the oceans. Ocean beans.
1: And then the DJ says, and coming up next, it's Call Me by Blondie. (laughs) That's right. And the guitar line at the start of Call Me from Blondie hits, which is like the bang, bang, dun 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 It's here I pause. If you wish to walk no farther <laughs> with me, reader, I cannot blame you. It is yeah. no easy road. That bangs. What a great phenomenological experience you're having. Yeah, it's good. And then I read the appendix. And then you read the appendix. You're like,
3: oh, And probably what a good book.
0: Gary Newman probably ride like the winds play. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm kind of yes. calmed down a little yes. bit. Yes.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: What's up with uh-huh. the appendix? uh the appendix is where gene wolf says hey nerd was that an
1: interjection immediately michael
2: (laughs) yes i i'm gonna i'm gonna put a lever in here please do it gene wolf doesn't say this okay george washington does Yeah, someone named
0: gw says this you're right someone named gw says it wait hold on gw metal gear metal gear (laughs) (laughs) metal gear 2 gw Kojima? Kojima told the future from 1980? (laughs) Uh, Hey, it's me, a Metal Gear fan. Hey, did Kojima tell the future about this
1: thing that's been around for a long time?
0: (laughs) I love Metal Gear. I'm I'm lightly roasting the fandom.
1: (laughs) Did Kojima say something about today that I'm going to misapprehend as being a prediction?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Michael, I I feel like this is your zone. I'm going to actually kick to you. Tell us about the appendix.
2: Uh so the appendix is This is, called is your a, bullshit specifically. It is, it is my specific bullshit. Uh so the appendix uh is subtitled A Note on the Translation, uh, and it explains uh well, you know, in rendering this book, originally composed in a tongue that has not yet achieved existence into English, I might easily have saved myself a great deal of labor by having recourse to invented terms. In no case have I done so. Thus, in many instances, I have been forced to replace yet undiscovered concepts with their closest 20th century equivalents. Such words as peltast, uh, androgen, and exultant are substitutions of this kind and are intended to be suggestive rather than definitive. Metal is usually but not always employed to designate a substance of the sort the word suggests to contemporary minds. Uh, There's additional sort of talk here about like the names of animals and breeding stock and things that we have already talked about where uh, uh, the names of things that are extinct are being used by things in Severian's world. And in fact, uh, parenthetical here, indeed, Severian sometimes seems to assume that an extinct species has been restored. Uh, particularly the nature of riding in draft horses is very obscure, et etc, et etc. Uh, Latin is once or twice employed to indicate the in- that inscriptions and the like are in a language Severian appears to consider obsolete. What the actual language may have been, I cannot say. So to Terminus tho- Est, for example. Yes. Right. 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 Uh, to those who have preceded me in the study of the post-historic world, and particularly to those collectors, too numerous to name Whoa. here, who have permitted me to examine artifacts surviving so many centuries of futurity, and most especially to those who have allowed me to visit and photograph the era's few extant buildings i am truly grateful gw i love it
1: flipping the desk over screaming at the top of my lungs going (laughs) to my kitchen getting a beer i'm Mm -hmm. just destroying uh, mick foley's christmas room yes yes (laughs) out of joy yeah joyous destruction i bring upon the world. right Austin Walker going full Schumpeter over here. It's hey, unbelievable. Or... What I sent you both last night was that everything you need to know about a person is how they react to the art to this this appendix. And I want to right, be yeah. clear: I don't think that that is a binary. I don't mean there's two types of people in the world. People mm-hmm. who like it. There's it, there's an endless <laughs> array of people in the there's world. There's an Elvis. There are Elvis uh, people and Beatles people, and there Beatles but, no. But there's there are, once told us. But there are and there are ACDC people and there are Jay Z people. And mm-hmm. what type of person you are against this appendix is all I need to know about you <laughs> truly <laughs> you get, but yeah
0: so it's uh, it is a uh playful uh provocation Yes. Mm-hmm. which is that the you shouldn't you should consider the language here in that there's big schematic stuff going on but you shouldn't get too hung up about any of the words mm-hmm not really kind of, it's, we're being playful. And, and there's a fun. little
1: bit of like shop talk here in a way where yeah. he's like, I'm doing my yeah. best. Here's what I'm trying to get to. Uh, I'm using words that kind of, you know, they're substitutions for other things. He talks about the Destrier. He says, the Destriers of the Book of the News are unquestionably much swifter and more enduring animals than those we know. And the speed of those used for military purposes seems to permit the delivering of cavalry charges against enemies supported by high energy armament.
3: Yeah, you can, okay. yeah uh,
0: some horses can get shot with a laser. <laughs> yeah,
1: dude. Uh-huh. Oh, by the
0: way, speaking of lasers, I love the discussion that happens way earlier uh, when he's talking about what if the crowd attack the scaffold? Yes. And he says, yeah, you know, uh, the guy who's here, the, the captain of the guard. <laughs> He's got a pistol. He could probably kill 50 or 60 of them before they (laughs) knocked him down and killed him. And it's like, holy, what? He's got a laser gun? He's got a laser Gatling pistol? He's a Brotherhood of Steel over here? Uh But Mm -hmm. I digress. I just love that little detail. I forgot to talk about it earlier. But yeah, there's this kind of of, – you're exactly
1: right. Shop talk is a great way to put it. Well, Mm -hmm. And again, we get the Borges here, right? The collector's too numerous to name who've let them into – into into their studies to 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 kind of piece this th- thing together. The whole thing becomes a sort of the the sort of project that a Borgesian protagonist uh you know does, right? Like, oh yes. And notably,
2: right, uh Borges is the type of person who uh uses his name for characters in stories yes. where that character is doing things that Borges never did, right? <laughs> right.
1: Which is why you you call to attention, GW does this, not the historical Gene Wolf. Right. But uh, can, can you put this in relation to the author function for me? <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, I mean, uh, you know, like, it, is he disclaiming
1: claiming something like mm-hmm. truly is there a value? is there what's what's he what is happening having done this? What does this right. do to my relationship with Gene Wolfe, the author? Well,
0: he, one of the things uh, is that he invents a guy. Right, GW. I, I do think that's an important like lever yes. to put in there, uh, Michael, mm-hmm. because GW becomes a person who is set up as an interpreter for the thing the are reading. So, and notably, uh, he's an interpreter and a translator. Right, and mm-hmm. he might get some stuff
1: wrong, or he might not notice things. Right. Or they, right? GW, who knows? And um, emphasize and so, different elements. Right, the classic right. thing of of you could right. do you can do a a translation of capital that emphasizes its economic. Uh, uh, terms, and you can do one that emphasizes Marx's poetry in places, right? Mm-hmm. Here's um, here's oh, me
2: pointing to like a couple hours ago when I was talking about Augustine saying how if you right, want right. to understand how to read, you have to understand how people translate things. Right. Right.
0: And the the thing here, the other playful thing that also is part of genre literature at this point is this This is just a rerun at The Lord of the Rings. Right?
2: Yes, but right. inverted. We, right. <laughs> right. Yes, right? yeah.
0: Instead of the deep past, it's the far future.
2: Right, right. Like uh, the the kind of like one of the grand structuring moves here is that whereas Tolkien and his legendarium are all supposed to be like the far, far distant past, right? This mythologized forgotten past. Uh, Gene Wolfe looks at that and he's like, okay, what if I did the same thing, but in the far future? Because also the other right. thing you need to know if you aren't deep into Lord of the Rings is that there's this, there's a whole conceit within uh, uh, Tolkien that uh, the texts that we uh, know as The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and The Silmarillion are, in fact, uh, within the world of Middle Earth, a single book. the The Red Book of uh, uh West March, I believe, is the mm-hmm. uh, direction. Um, yep. And they were like it's like a, a a composite thing, which is the type of thing that uh, Tolkien, as a you know linguist, a philologist, and a, a medievalist uh, who was doing lin- linguistic research, he would go into libraries and he would find these old books uh, from the Middle Ages and earlier translations of various classical authors or just reprintings and they'd been bound together kind of willy nilly. And one of your jobs was to, uh, figure out, okay, what is the provenance of each of these? Where did they come from? Uh, if I separate these into different texts, how will I translate them? Why were they put together to, to begin with in the first place? And so on and so forth. So part of the Lord of the Rings conceit is that there is this book that holds all of these other books within it. And Tolkien is like doing a reconstructive and, and translational work on it and from it. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and,
0: and just notably here, big top level. The Bread Book of Westmarch, the Book of the New Sun. Right? Uh huh. Right. I just <laughs> right. want to like point out the you know yeah. the, the the plowman's <laughs> meaning here. Right. There's a very direct thing going on.
2: Right. And so uh, Wolf then casts this uh, thought experiment or sort of like you know fun little conceit into the future, and what he arrives at is actually a a sort of different or like you know po- po- actually doesn't does it post date Tolkien? Hold on. Let me let me check. Does what post date Tolkien? Uh, uh, dying earth as a subgenre, no, it doesn't. no, right? Right, Vance no, it does not because, working. um, I'm pretty sure, uh, Hodgson's The Nightland, uh, comes out in like 19 teens or something.
0: Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, Vance is publishing before Tolkien dies, yeah, that's what I'm right. He must The be- Nightland is 1912, uh, um, yeah, um, and, uh, Vance is, yeah, is is writing while Tolkien is, like, kicking around and yelling at people about mistranslating (laughs) or or, uh, misapprehending the rights of the Lord of the Rings. So, yeah. Right. The initial Dying Earth stories are 1950 from Vance. So Right. Yep. Contemporary. Uh,
2: Right. So uh, we hit what is actually, you know, uh, on just King Things, this comes up, I think, more often. uh, The fact that I am uh, uh, just inveterate fantasy hater (laughs) Mm -hmm. um in in like a general way uh it's not a genre that i typically enjoy for various reasons we don't need to get into them and then like it's you know totally me does not mean that i think you're a bad person if you like fantasy or whatever it just doesn't uh it doesn't give me uh the petrol that i need to cook with Mm -hmm. um uh However, within this, there is a subgenre called Dying Earth that, in fact, (laughs) I like quite a bit. And it's named after what you mentioned, Cameron, the Jack Vance stories, which are the tales from the Dying Earth. That's what they're called to called uh, sort of retroactively um, or as they're sort of like, you know, taken together as kind of like a whole little cycle that Vance produces in the 50s. Well, Uh, yeah,
0: his his fix up
1: book in 1950 is called Dying Earth. Okay,
3: yeah. Yeah. And
2: that was
1: Uh, already fiction that had been published in the years prior to that, like short fiction, right? Yep.
3: Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. The the Dying Earth book is a uh, compendium of, I think, six or seven stories you wrote yeah. before. So, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and so, uh, uh, you know, but it, uh, prior to that, there are other stories like this. Uh, I mentioned William Hope Hodgson's The Nightland, which um, is kind of a, a deep favorite of mine. Uh, maybe we'll read it on this show at some point, although maybe I doubt it because, boy, is it hard to get through. Mm-hmm. Um uh, <laughs> uh, but it's there are because other...
0: it's boring,
2: <laughs> it's super boring, but like boring in a way that I love. <laughs> uh, uh, but then, um, um, you know, I'm just like checking Wikipedia here to see like what Wikipedia considers to be predecessors, and like there's plenty of stuff from like the 19th century that's putting being put into conversation here, right? Even the time machine, uh, uh, is, sure. is mentioned here because they get yeah. so far into the future. The idea behind the dying earth subgenre is that you are reading a story that takes place so far into the future that the earth is dying in one way or another, right? Civilizations have come and gone. Uh, society is kind of like at the other end of it. There, there's a, usually a, like a, a, a symmetrical kind of thinking, right? That, uh, Society, like civilization, emerged from kind of uh, superstition and various uh, warring city states and uh, tribes. Usually, right there, there's some, there's weird relationships with indigeneity that show up in these stories, and we're going to get them in New Sun as well. uh, that basically, you know, you can fold human history in the middle and the beginning and the end look basically the same, except, uh, it's much sadder at the end because there's no way out, right? Uh, uh, in, in Vance's stories, the sun is dying, right? The sun, and that's actually in the Nightland. The sun has already burnt out. People are on a dark earth, uh, Living in a, uh, a fortress surrounded by these massive aliens that are waiting for the fortress's systems to fail, and they just sit on the horizon and wait and watch. And that's all. And like, that's their life, right? Is looking out the windows and seeing the giant Cthulhu's that are going to come and eat them once the systems fail, Uh in Vance, uh, the sun is, like, large, red. It's, it's you know, petering out. We have gotten multiple references throughout uh, this book so far uh, from Severian about how the sun is red and tired and old. Uh, even during the daylight, you can still see some of the stars because it's and, not lighting up the sky that, in the way right, that it used the to. The sky
1: literally isn't the color it used to be.
2: Yeah. Right. Uh, so this is all to say that, uh, uh, one of the things that Dying Earth does, and this, uh, it's present in some of the other stuff I mentioned, but like the, the thing that people typically go to, I think is like Jack Vance's system of magic, uh, in the Dying Earth stories, which provides the model actually for the early magic system in Dungeons and Dragons, uh, but it's very clear in Vance's stories That the magic that the various wizard characters use, uh, they're always described as mathematical formulae Mm -hmm. that are memorized. And when you speak them aloud, something happens and then you forget it. And then you have to go back and memorize it again if you want to do it again. But the fact that they are like mathematical formulae uh, and they like have the, 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 the implication being we are so far in the future that the what's his name? It was Clark who said that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Right. Right. Uh, people figured out physics in such a way that merely speaking aloud, a math problem would make, would have results in the world. Right. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so, Gene Wolfe, uh, in this in uh, the book of the New Sun, is often being put into dialogue with Dying Earth as a subgenre, and I think this is worth flagging because it's not a subgenre that everyone knows about or is familiar with, and it's definitely not necessarily something you're going to come to these books kind of uh, in the back of your head, uh, and depending on that, you might have a very different experience of this book from other people. So, um, you know, one thing. Uh, That this means for me is like someone who loves the dying earth stories uh, and like was familiar with them and everything and like started reading them, reading this book, Book of the New Sun, specifically because it was being pitched to me as like, you know, what if the dying earth kicked ass in ways you couldn't even imagine? (laughs) Um, And it does. Like, that's actually not an inaccurate way of of describing it. Uh, This means that when I was reading it, uh, it was not like a surprise. Like, I was picking up, oh, they're in a spaceship. Oh, that's the moon landing. Uh, because I was familiar with the moves from Vance, which are never this specific. That's the other thing to be underscored here. And like what I think, uh, makes Wolf very distinct within the subgenre, at least as it existed at the time that he is writing, uh, uh, Vance, uh, even something like Clark, Clark Ashton Smith's, uh, Zothique cycle, which is very similar. It's like, it's the, the stories of the last continent on earth when the sun is dying out and everyone's a necromancer and uh, Wolf is a big fan of this cycle, and we'll talk about that more later. Uh, But um, the... one of the things that happens in this subgenre is that basically like the, the premises of science fiction of like, Oh, we're going to base this on real science kind of get left behind and you move into more of a fantasy space. Uh, and one of the consequences then is that it's, it's so far in the future that the world is truly unrecognizable beyond like the barest, uh, uh, recognitions of like, Oh, they have math problems in mm-hmm. books and magicians are guys who like read math textbooks all day and memorize the formula. Uh, Wolf Does like Wolf commits to the bit of uh, the far future thing so extensively uh, in, you know, when I realized, oh, it's a spaceship like that was super exciting. Uh, because he is writing the 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 dying earth from the inside out in a way right. that a, a person from the location would understand it uh, rather than something like Jack Vance where it's like, you know, uh, those stories are largely third person omniscient narration. So it's like you and the narrator get to sit above the characters and kind of like notice these things. There's a bit in one of Vance's stories where um, there's like a, a, a rogue artificial intelligence that is living in uh, some like tunnels beneath a city. Uh, and th- they don't recognize as an artificial intelligence, right? But th- that's kind of, like, clearly what it is. Uh, and that's your recognition as the reader, uh, and it's very clear that that's kind of what's going on. Uh, whereas, as we've talked about extensively with with these, with these this book in particular, but as we'll continue to talk about, uh, because of the way that this novel is so closely tied and focalized on Severian, his way of presenting the world and his way of experiencing it, you get this— and and this is the other thing that needs to be marked about Wolf. He's using techniques of literary modernism, uh, that are dedicated toward like the, the kind of meditative qualities of consciousness, right? People like Proust and Joyce, uh, are people who are interested in writing and capturing the ways that they think like, or that they believe that people think about the world and how people, uh, reflect on their own experience, Um, So modernism becomes associated deeply with, uh, uh, you know, kind of the growth of like the modern individual and uh, uh, character and things like that. You know, the psychology and so on. Mm -hmm. Wolf is bringing all of these disparate influences together and creating something that is like so weird and cool and unique because he is not observing these divisions between like high modernist literature and like weird pulp fantasy thought experiments. Right. He brings them together and produces something that is just a. challenging in ways, uh, that genre literature is not always challenging, uh, because it is using mechanisms from literature that is self-consciously trying to challenge, uh, uh, an audience in particular ways and with a particular kind of, um, aesthetic and sometimes political program behind it.
1: Totally. Which, which is like, you know, the, the parts of, it's part of why I think we could talk for Twelve more hours just about these chapters, which we're not going to (laughs) do, is that the version of this that is like, and there is the gate of Nessus, and it is the whole of a spaceship, uh, and it's described in loving detail, and we're all like, that's kick-ass, we move on from that. But the version where Severian looks at it and goes, wow... Just like the metal that's used in the spaceship holes I lived in the in the tower that I grew up in that we know is a spaceship um, but it's ground but it's about uh, Severian's apprehension and emotional connection to Leaving this place is suddenly also reminding him of his home and his childhood. There's lots to play with there that is also nevertheless still grounded in the black metal of the gates of Nessus could-be-spaceship stuff. And I, and I, I think it, like, it works coming and going You know, in a way that I think a lot of uh, fantasy literature didn't work for me also. And, and in a way that, frankly, some modernist literature doesn't work for me um, because unless the, the prose is really good, I can find myself bored. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that that is like uh, part of why this hits a certain sweet spot for, for me. It's good. No offense. To, and also like truly no offense to Vance, but like I think that stuff is bore, is is written in a boring style for me, despite thinking mm-hmm. that the, the, the actions inside are kind of interesting and the, the places certainly are. Also, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead, Cameron.
0: Oh, just, uh, I, I like Gene Wolfe's little flavor of gremlin more than I like Jack Vance's. Yeah, flavor of gremlin. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah,
2: exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, also, let me, let's
0: oh, just. Oh,
2: actually, yeah, well, I think I'll flag is that if I sparked your interest and you've never heard of Vance or yes. the Dying Earth and you want to go read those things, you can go do that. Know that all of the stuff that we have talked about up until now with regard in this book with regard to, like, Severian and the way that he thinks about women, the way that the roles that women play in these stories, yeah. uh, the the constant lingering threat of sexual assault and things like that that is also all coming out of vance and so uh well wolf again like part of what he's doing here is using like he's turning the genre over on itself and like commenting on his own lineage through these characters and the type like the type of person who uh you have to be in a vance story uh you know if you read those if you read those stories just keep in mind like how how does severian fit with this and how does he not fit with it right
1: Right? Useful reading to do for, for this project, probably. But uh, the little thing I wanted to say again really quick is uh, to those who have preceded me in the study of the post-historic world, uh, you have to you have to have hit this page and seen that what GW is saying here is, oh, yeah, um, this is a book from the future. This is a book written in a tongue that doesn't exist yet. And, and uh, you know, that is... I don't uh, – he's doing something, right? We're talking about the future as if it's a thing that is d- going to happen. Um, he doesn't say it's from – I guess he says it's from a, a tongue that has not achieved exist, existence – has not yet a- achieved existence. I don't know if he's saying there's only one future. I don't know if he's saying that this is from a potential future. But that is what's happening. Uh, and, and I don't think that that's like – that's not uh, airlocked away from the rest of the text. The idea that the future is coming at us, uh, let alone that he could go to it, um, and I put this in conversation next to like the um, the botanical gardens, right, where it seemed as if, mm-hmm. oh yes, Father Nere has figured out how to go to the past, uh, or, or 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 to build a an Epcot Center or a <laughs> a you know a Disney World of of past places that you can visit, maybe a little of A, maybe a little of B. Here in the final revelation of the book is. And in the world of, that the book is being translated, you can go to the future and bring things back. Or some people have done that, at least. Or things from the future have come to us in some way, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's playful around that, It's playful. That, right? it, I love it. Makes it makes that
0: ambigu- ambiguous. And um, I think you're exactly right. The the thing that you just said about it it, it is an error to – uh, hermeneutically seal this off, right? right. Hermetically, hermetically, hermetically seal not hermeneutically. Hermetically, I the, well, yeah. The, 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 <laughs> I guess both actually <laughs> oh, yeah. enough, ways, but yeah. Hermetically seal this off. You know, it's not the 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 fiction is not like in its perfect little orb and there's like a wizard above it, you know, managing it, right? The right. wizard is the orb in this situation. And so Ooh. uh the the reason I say that is that uh this might not be shocking. Each of the books has its own appendix. That's going to give us some more kind of external knowledge of the thing. Mm-hmm. But Gene Wolfe is a person, is an author who loves to play around with all this stuff of language, whatever. And so in the same way that Severian might be misapprehending or misdescribing or telling us more than he intends to. I think the appendixes all have little pieces of that too, right? They, they are all playful in the same way and they are maybe more playful in the sense that like, you're not going to learn anything from these appendices that is like plot critical in terms of understanding these books. It's mostly just like fun, little extra stuff. But sometimes they'll have an; they will have an interpretive maneuver, and they'll get mm-hmm. flagged as an interpretive maneuver, right? Like I think, blah blah blah. It's even happening here, right? Where he's like, I don't know. Sometimes Severian seems like he thinks some things that are extinct are alive, mm-hmm. like you know, like mm-hmm. it, Literally, the the GW, our translator is telling us, I don't really know what's happening here. I'm just trying to give you what I what I got. So that's a thing to to really consider here. Again, the appendix is not a place to be like, here is is you know, completely settled truth. Uh, And the facts of the matter, the appendix is just another place for productive ambiguity to happen. Mm -hmm. But it's also a place where Gene Wolfe through GW can clearly tell us stuff like, hey, look, don't get too caught up on the words, right? Like the words are uh, an approximation of what's really there. You might need to use some context clues to determine what you think is actually there.
1: Mm-hmm. I so I didn't hear anything you just said because I was thinking of Cameron Councilman, the technological determinist, the self, the self proclaimed occasional. Maybe I'm just a technological determinist, but yeah, yeah. Uh, saying the wizard is the orb, which is what fantasy Cameron would say in yeah. a world of wizards and orbs. You would say the yeah. wizard is just the orb. The wizard well, is, and, uh, you know,
2: in the, in the final instance, basically the wizard, <laughs> wizard is the orb. Yeah, yeah. he gazes upon himself.
1: He gazes yeah. upon himself. Yeah. Yeah. if the, the, the wizard's orb.
2: looking at something.
0: Right. You know, uh, you get you're standing in Northank and you're you're touching that orb, and you're gazing out upon the you know the Rohirrim. Yeah, you you're the you're the plains, you're the gaze.
3: Yeah,
2: <laughs> that's right, that's correct. Uh, and I got this mm-hmm. from I think people talking about the uh, versions of the book that they purchased. Is mm-hmm. it the case that there are current printings of this book that put the appendix at the beginning? No, or there's someone like someone did way- say that. If yeah. there,
0: there are not current printings. I believe that there is a pirated edition of this okay. thing running around. That is my uh-huh. impression. Someone correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that there is a pirated online copy running around of this book where someone has thrown this appendix in the front. Okay. There, I, I, a couple people have mentioned that to me, and I've clarified, well, where'd you get it? And they're like, I found it on the internet. So. Okay. Yes, yeah, somewhere, someone you. someone is doing a, yeah. <laughs> uh, some sort of WG is tricking <laughs> you <laughs> some sort of intercessor. Um, but uh, but yeah, so and and I think there is a temptation for people once they find out these appendixes exist. And if you're like if you are someone in, say, the online fan community, which does have this kind of vibe to it sometimes of like the appendixes are the truth here. Yeah. Let's go and like look at the appendixes. I think that someone might be thinking they're doing you a favor by putting the appendix in the front to be like to, as a preface to be like, "Hey, guess what? This is important to learn this." And I bet that there are going to be some people who hear us saying this and go off and just read all the appendixes because they are clarifying for a lot of things that mm-hmm. are maybe ambiguous. I can't tell you how to live your life. I wouldn't suggest doing that because they are put at the end for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, they they are put at the end so that you discover them as you're reading the books. Not that you have them in front of them, but that would be my assumption: is that the appendix in whatever version that people are running around with that have the appendix in the front. I think whoever put those editions together are probably thinking they're doing people a favor, um, mm-hmm. and and I don't agree with that. And if there is a printed edition and I've gotten that wrong, please tell me that uh, you know. Let me know. But but my impression has been appendix in the front, a pirate did achieve appendix in the back. <laughs> official public, uh, official pub. It shall be there. We go. Mm-hmm. Okay. Barbar- hashtag barbarian rhymes.
1: Cameron, can you confirm or deny that Paul Virilio said that when Feanor invented the Palantir in the uttermost west, he invented the snaring of, of Sauron? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> happened. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, can, let me read you a little thing that
0: that, that uh, is kind of related to that. Um, <laughs> what weirdly enough i let me let me <laughs> read you this thing the, in the here's from wikipedia in mm-hmm. the last chapter of the return of the king tolkien provides a title page for the red book of Westmarch, inscribed with a succession of rejected titles the final title is Frodo. so here's rejected titles of the lord of, of <laughs> the lords he, he did a listicle
2: he did at the yeah, end yeah, this yeah, is
0: yeah. it, it <laughs> really
1: cracked, actually
0: uh my diary my unexpected journey there and back again and what happened after Crossed out. Adventures of Five Hobbits. The Tale of the Great Ring, compiled by Bilbo Baggins from his own observations and accounts of his friends. Crossed out. What we did in the War of the Ring. Crossed out. Accepted title. This is the official title. The downfall of the Lord of the Rings and the return of the king as seen by the little people being the memoirs of Bilbo and Frodo of the Shire supplemented by the accounts of their friends and learning of the wise together with extracts from books of lore translated by Bilbo and Rivendell. You know, so sometimes you, uh, you write a book that tells the downfall of the Lord of the Rings.
1: That's a better title, by the way. The downfall of the Lord of the Rings is a way better title than the Lord of the but you're not getting the ambiguity. Who's the real Lord of the Rings? I guess that's true. You know? It's Gandalf. <laughs> it's Gandalf. Gandalf was, it turned out to <laughs> that be should the be Lord. here
0: at the end. Gandalf is the Lord of the Rings crossed out. Bilbo took that out. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let, you know, I, I mess this up nearly every time. So I got to do it right now before we inevitably get into all the different things that we do. Uh-huh. Uh, we got some credits for the show. We got uh, Cinderwell did the themes, Sam Beck did the podcast art, and Jordan Mallory does the production for the show. So edits the show, takes out some gaps, makes us seem smarter than we are in real life <laughs> by selective editing, all that kind of stuff. So thanks to all of them. Information about all of our uh, co-conspirators for the program, uh, all the other people who were involved in the uh, Tower of Penitence and whatnots and who done it in the in the mysteries of our guild. Their information can be down found down in the description below. We are, of course, uh, us. Austin, you got anything you want to plug?
1: What should I plug today? I don't know. Uh, I, I do a more civilized age, a podcast about Star Wars. We're wrapping up the first season of Rebels right now. By the time you hear this, that first season should probably be about over. Friends of the Table is in the middle of a sci-fi season called Palisade. Go listen to Partisan. It's it's predecessor first. Uh, is, that, is that the other podcast I do? I'm going to be on the abnormal mapping episode for Final Fantasy 16. So if you want to hear me talk more about mm. fantasy stuff, that's a thing you could go do.
3: Final
0: Fantasy that's 16
1: fun. episode coming later in July. I think that those yeah, are check the a good out. Abnormal mapping.
0: Uh, Shout uh, out. Uh, friend, friend of, friends of the network. Yeah, absolutely. As it were. Um, I, I don't know if I'm on it by the time this comes out. I don't know what the schedule is, but sometime sh- soon I'll be on the Iron Age of Comics podcast Ooh. talking about... Uh, the X Men animated show from the nineties. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and we watched the whole first season, so I, I, we're going long on it. Um, and and I'm over there. There's nothing I'm more appreciative of, of generally, than people who are bigger nerds than I am, <laughs> so that I can go on their program and call them nerds to their face. Mm-hmm. That's fun. <laughs>
2: It's a real loss for you that we ended up working together rather than me being someone you could guest with.
0: (sighs) I know. know. Well, I get to do it on our own program. I get to go, all right, Michael, you remember everyone's name. Uh, Go ahead. Tell us about it. Tell us everyone's name. But So I'll be on that show. It was a great episode. It's also very long. My apologies. Uh, maybe they'll edit it down, but we recorded for a long time. Uh, so I'm over on that. Also, I haven't plugged it on the show, I don't think. Uh, but I wrote a book that is about science fiction and video games and speculation. <laughs> we did a bad job of introducing ourselves in the first episode. I just kind of, I don't know. I figured if they cared, they would know. But maybe not. Maybe you no. don't know. It's called The World Is Born from Zero. It's it it only costs $21.99. I and mean, it's written, it's an academic book, but I think it's written in such a way that like people who are not academics can just read it and have a good time and learn about some of the stuff that I'm talking about, uh, get involved in French theory and, and speculation and what's up with thinking about the world and what happens when you get involved in video games to ask you to do labor that doesn't exist in our world and all <laughs> kinds of stuff like that. So if you like that, uh, it's called the world is born from zero and uh, you can easily find it uh, wherever books are sold As long as it's one of two or three storefronts that sell academic books. Michael, you got anything (laughs)
2: you want to plug? Nope. I'm just here and I make these shows. Mm -hmm.
1: Working on the
0: Homestuck book. What are the other
2: shows? I'm working on the Homestuck book. Yeah.
1: People might not know the other shows.
2: Uh, so we do game studies, study buddies, Cameron and I here at range touch. Uh, that was our first show. It is one where Cameron and I read books of academic game studies and we try to make them accessible, uh, to people who might not have the academic background or who are coming at the discipline from, uh, somewhere else. You know, uh, I know a, actually a big portion of our audience is people who work in the industry, who are designers and developers. Um who want to know, like, what are what are game studies folks saying about these things that you make? Uh, so you can check that out. It's a, a great time. I think our most recent episode, as of the time you hear this, is one about agency. We're in the summer of agency. We're reading a series of books about agency and video games. Uh, so you can check that out. We also do Too Much Future, which is Cameron and I playing through the Fallout games. And that's going to be wrapping up soon because we're on Fallout 76. That episode is not out yet, probably, but we are currently playing 76. And we've kind of uh, uh, sketched the history of that franchise from beginning to end and thought a lot about similar concerns from game studies, but also concerns about genre, you know, post apocalyptic science fiction. What is that? What does it do? What is satire? Was Fallout satire? You may have heard that Fallout is satire and the answer to that question uh, in its granularity may surprise you. So check that out. Uh, And then we also did Homestuck Made This World which is a uh, thing that I am current, like a a research that I was doing for a book that I am currently writing on Homestuck uh, that is, again, about uh, questions of genre uh, and reading and interpretation, um, but more specifically using Homestuck, which I was there for in its original run, and I subjected Cameron to retroactively throughout the course of Homestuck Made This World, where I was, uh, uh, we were reading the comic and I was reading the Something Awful forum threads to chart fan reaction uh, as it happened in real time to the updates of the comic, which ran for seven years, and thinking about, uh, you know, how in in the contemporary online way, uh, how do audiences and their creator, or, yeah, uh, audiences and like the creators that they are uh Reading, watching, it gets kind of blurry. Uh, How do those things interact with one another? How does interpretation work in those instances? And uh, what sorts of behaviors are elicited? And how does that all kind of fit into the jaws of neoliberal capitalism and and franchise culture? Ooh, spooky. Um, So those are the things that we do. And if you don't want to listen to The Homestuck Show, I assure you the book is going to cover the important parts.
1: You should listen to that show. That show is great. I really love
2: that show. (laughs) Thank you. It was, it was an investment of time.
1: It seemed like a lot of work, uh, more than, more than I'm doing for this one. I'll tell you that much. Uh, I'm taking notes. I'm reading a book I already like, you know, <laughs> easy. Well, you've only like, half of it, so yeah, we true. need
0: to be, need to be clear. You're right. You're uh, right. You're right. if you want to support any of this, you want to support these shows we got a bunch of bonus episodes for this program. We got a bunch of bonus episodes for homestuck made this world and just King things and a bunch of other things as well.
2: Oh, I forgot uh, just King things. Jesus, probably you know the most love. popular show.
0: We mention it all the time. We're reading Stephen King in publication order. We just did Rose Matter. Mm-hmm. Better than you think. Um, <laughs> you know, uh hey, you think Hethor is just that little kid from uh the jaunt? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, y- yeah, yeah, kinda
2: like that would fuck you up. I mean it'd fuck the kid up Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh <laughs> where's my paracoida dad? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, the pine wood box it's neater than you think dad (laughs) Uh, uh, it's nicer than you think it's my perfect pine wood box lemon wood box anyway patreon.com slash range touch in order to support the show you can get access to a bunch of bonus episodes and things like that uh, if you enjoy listening to The Thing, the best way that you can help us keep doing The Thing is by giving us some money every month. Uh, in a general sense, I think there's probably enough backlog there to, to consume a lot of your time if you're looking for a thing to consume your time. And uh, quite often we're giving a lot of uh, cool information in the background of the stuff. In particular for this show, we've got the um, Shelf by Genre bonus odes, and we're kind of looking at contemporary work that informs What's going on in Book of the New Sun? So we've already done The Lord of the Rings, and by the time that this is out, there our episode on Conan the Barbarian will also be out. So come check that out, Conan the Barbarian in 1982, starring Schwarzenegger, Gino De Laurentiis' film. Um, so uh, not directed by, but produced by. And uh, so come check that out. Uh, it really helped us out a huge amount, and also we don't spend any money on advertising. Uh, The only way people hear about the show is if you tell them about the show. So please uh, do some word of mouth, get on some discords, recommend the show, get on Reddit, all kinds of things like that. Get on whatever new social media platform is coming to uh, uh, resurrect the feeling of goodness that you had in your heart at one moment about the promises of social media. Get on there and uh, tell people about the show, please. It'll help us out a lot. One final thing before we go, Michael, uh, we're going to be doing some Q&A stuff on the bonus odes occasionally. So if people mm-hmm. want to hear that, you might want to get on there. We're going to be doing that. And uh, there's an email address that people can send questions to.
2: Where, uh, what is that email address? It is questionedbygenre at gmail.com. And I'll put that uh, down in the description below as well if
0: you want it. Thanks so much for listening to the program. Uh, We finished Shadow of the Torture. We'll be back in two weeks with the next episode, which will be on uh, Claw of the Conciliator. uh, And it'll be on basically the first third. Those will be up on various social medias. And you know what? I'll put them down in the show notes below what the next reading is because people keep asking for it. So this is me listening to you and signing off for Austin and Michael. By kicking it to Michael to say his poem that
2: ends the show. (laughs) Amid these stacks so straight and tall with tomes lined end to end, how are you to find your way? It's shelved by genre, friend.